Hello, everybody. Mackenzie here from Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. Yes, I know season five has been taking a bit longer to get put together and get out. But I promise you that toward the beginning of 2023, we will have the season five premiere. And boy, do we have a great season lined up for you. And we definitely have some big announcements to make. In the meantime, though, between now and the new year, we are going to be doing something special. As you may know, I am part of another theater company called Cup of Hemlock Theater, where I am the co-artistic producer. And on that show, we do reviews of live theater that we see, as well as reviews of stage pro shots, as well as artist interviews and roundtable discussions. So between now and then, I'm going to be releasing our episodes we've done on musical pro shots we've covered, including the pro shot of Oklahoma starring Hugh Jackman. We have a pro shot of Showboat that we've done. We've done one of David Hasselhoff's Jekyll and Hyde. So we have a few great episodes that I love to introduce you to this other venue that I do. So if you have interests beyond musicals and want to know more about traditional plays and hear from other local artists, This is a great podcast you can listen to. So check out these episodes and I hope you'll join us on the Cup of Hemlock feed as well because you'll find me there as well. Thanks, everybody. Stay tuned for season five. I promise it's coming early 2023. Thanks so much. See you soon and enjoy listening. Hello, everybody. And welcome back to our Halloween special episode of The Cup Reviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theatre. And it is a very special Halloween episode because we have a five-person panel today. Yes, the ever-elusive five. I think the last time we did it was maybe Merry Wives of Windsor. At least that's the last one I remember us doing a five-person. So I don't know if we've done one since. But they are few and far between. But it's only because the show warrants... So many voices. It elicited such a response from people. And for our Halloween episode this year, everybody, we are doing a very, or what is supposed to be a spooky musical. Whether or not it achieves that, we will get into. But we are talking about the musical Jekyll and Hyde, co-produced by Jerry Frankel and Jeffrey Richards and directed by Robin Phillips. And this was a film version that was released on March the 10th. 2001 as a one-night-only event in seven digital cinemas in Boston, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Dallas, New York, Phoenix, and Washington, D.C., with showings on cable and satellite pay-per-view channels in the U.S. and Canada and Latin America. And, of course, this stars the very interesting celebrity casting choice of David Hasselhoff as the (laughs) titular Jekyll and Hyde. And joining us for this breakdown we have a plethora of familiar faces first off returning from brokeback mountain is i think the last time we had this gentleman on it is patrick hello patrick welcome back how are you we see you've ditched the hasselhoff locks for a more refined look yeah i'm great i've got chopped my hair off this is the first time i'm featuring the short hair on the cup so that's fantastic 
Yes. And what is in your cup today? In my cup is, it looks like it would be coffee. I almost always come with coffee, but I was lazy and I used my coffee mug to pour a strong beer in. So I'm drinking a 12% beer. So we're going to see how this commentary goes as we, you know, get further in. Love it. Love it. Love it. And also going back from our Brokeback Mountain panel, Andrew, I believe that's the last one we saw you on as well. No? I, what was the one? You were sorry? supposed to be on. I was supposed to be on to drop out at the last right. Yes. yes, that's yeah. right. You, you, you got it. You got a real theater job. What was, yeah. it, was streetcar your last one? I believe it was streetcar. Yeah. Yes, yes. streetcar. Yeah. yeah. Damn, that that's a, a good time. one. That was yes. But Andrew, <laughs> tell us how are you? What are like? What are you up to? You just got cast in another show as well with a very spooky character you're playing. Yeah, it's uh, I got cast in a short film as the Ooh. devil, which is why I got some point to my goatee, which <laughs> funny enough, I didn't ask for. I think the barber just kind of knew as I walked in. They're like, I know what you want. Yeah, <laughs> real satanic vibe. Going yes, on. heck yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, short film and uh, looking forward to being on another episode. Like Ryan said, it's been too long. I don't actually even have a cup for this one. I just have a can. Nice. Um, but I got my Georgian Bay raspberry rhubarb vodka smash going. Nice. Yeah, Very is, nice. It, it is only 5%. So okay. <laughs> I'll have to catch up with Patrick. You have to drink <laughs> twice as much. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. And then also joining us is our associate producer, Ms. Jillian Robinson. Hello, Jill. Hello, Mac. What is in your cup? What is your ensemble tonight? Ensemble, yes. I'm very autumnal and kind of like Lucy bounding, I guess. I'm wearing like the little, a little piece of lingerie that kind of is like the old corset vibe with a cardigan though, because I'm really chilly in my apartment. (laughs) And then I have little pumpkin earrings with black hats on the top. And some orange, like coral colored makeup mm-hmm. vibes going on. Love that. Love that. And then I have my Guinness mug that does not have Guinness in it. It has David T's Monster Mash tea. Ooh. It's part of their pumpkin kit this year. So I thought it was very fitting. So my Monster Mash tea is in this Edward Hyde burly mug. And then, of course, I have my lukewarm lemon Jekyll glass of water. So love we it. have two two drinks going on. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Love Very it. on what theme. Half the episode is Jill breaking down what her vibes. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's true. It's true. And then, of course, we have my fellow co-artistic producer, the man who always rocks a really good flannel shirt. It is Mr. Ryan Barakovich. Hello, Ryan. Uh, hello, Mac. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. What is in your cup today, sir? Um, yeah, so I, I have, I did have coffee in my cup. Oh. So yeah, I brought the coffee for this. And I was looking for something autumnal because Jill is prepping like all these like fancy things. And I'm like, oh, I can't compete with this. But I do have <laughs> this over the garden wall mug that I believe I've oh. used probably on one or two panels before. It says, ain't that just the way? And yeah, if we're going to talk about one Halloween masterpiece, we might as well bring out a mug for another Halloween masterpiece. Very good. Very good. And I have just my classic water in my silver tankard. Nice. There we go. But yes, so before we dive in, everybody, let's quickly go around and say what our favorite song was of the show. Because this is a musical, if you did not know that this is a musical. So, So as we do with Oklahoma... 
in Showboat, we always gave our favorite song. So, Ryan, as this kind of was your pitch for us to do this, what is your favorite song? Well, because I love this show so much, I can't just have one favorite song. Okay. I will give you my three favorite songs. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> In ascending order, Take Me As I Am, Confrontation, and In His Eyes, Boom. Mm. Those With are choices. Songs. I like duets. All three of them are duets, but one of they them are. has only one actor on stage. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Jill? How about you? There it is. Okay, sorry. I had to look. I'm looking at the list right now, making sure I get it correct. Okay, so I also have a couple of songs that I'm going to say, too, because I also like a musical of this musical, or the music of this musical. Okay, so Once Upon a Dream it has been in my music, my own personal musical theater book for years. So love that. Love that vibe. Someone Like You, because also a great power vibe and i would love to play lucy one day mm-hmm. and in his eyes yeah which i kind of forgot about and then ryan brought to my attention while we were watching it and i had goosebumps all over my body so i was like yep that's another favorite song all yeah. right all right andrew oh if we're doing i'm glad we can do three because i mean by far my absolute favorite is confrontation yeah mm. Heck yes. But I do love, I actually really like Take Me As I Am. Mm-hmm. And I like Alive. That nice. one's fun. Even the re- the reprises, I think, I kind of bulk them together. I'm like, yes, those are fun. <laughs> yes, yes. I love that. I love that. Patrick? Yeah, I also was like, kind of had to do three. I'm going to repeat In His Eyes. I mean, first of all, anything Lucy does. The second Lucy's on stage, I'm actually mm-hmm. just like sold. Um, Bow down. Uh, ooh, I can already see some potential disagreements, but yeah, but in his eyes. And then I think for my favorite kind of, I, cause yeah, I'm going to say my favorite, one of my favorite bad moments was, which makes me love the song was yeah. Dangerous game. Uh, the Hawks acting in it was so hilarious. <laughs> oh, we're that get was to definitely that. peak. And then also just cause it's so Frank Wildhorn facade, like the second that was going and we have like the kind of like, obvious mm-hmm. contrapuntal melodic choices yes. and stuff i'm like oh yeah we're deep in frank wells for right at the beginning um mm-hmm. and so i did appreciate that mm-hmm. yes i will say for me my number one will always be this is the moment because i i have that song in my song but i have performed it got a big standing o when i was in high school so it's always got a special place in the heart but i will say facade not for the lyrics because they're just so generic but the mute but the musicality i love the musicality in that the orchestration of that is great and the harmonies are bang on and then the other one is murder uh, the opening of act two it's a great montage it has one it has probably one of the worst lyrics i've ever heard that probably makes sondheim roll in his grave which is he killed outside saint paul's that man must have a lot of balls <laughs> Which is I'm probably sorry, you think that's the worst lyric you've ever heard? Correction. <laughs> Best oh, lyric ever. Lyrics. That is such a bad lyric. You were lyrics. all thinking it. <laughs> it's just so It bad. takes a lot of balls to write a lyric like that. Yeah. Hey, but yeah. it's not, It's to me, it's not like the use of balls. Like, that could be hilarious. It's like rhythmically, it's so stilted. It's, it, it's yeah. really getting shoehorned in. They're really shoehorning the balls in. It's true. <laughs> He killed Al Qaeda. Sh- 
you horn those balls, balls right in. He's got a lot of balls. It's like, okay, all right, I get it. St. Paul's balls. Like, all right, there we go. And then, of course, we're also talking about the dead priest bishop guy there. So mm-hmm. double entendre there. But it's like, oh, so, oh, every time I hear that lyric, I'm just like, damn, if we saw on time we were in this show, it would have been so much better. Mm-hmm. And it would be a little priest that was killed. Oh, <laughs> but we're going to talk about Sweeney later. Yes, well, we are. We will, but let's get into this piece. So first off, we've got to talk about the man behind me there, the Hoff himself, Mr. David Hasselhoff. What do we all think of his performance as the titular duo of Jekyll and Hyde? Andrew, I will let you start this one. I was worried it was going to be me first. (laughs) (laughs) Very worried. You know what? I didn't hate it. I got to tell you, like I think it's it's Such high praise. It's yeah. <laughs> it's big. It's certainly very big, and just vocally, you hear Anthony Warple's soundtrack or studio recording, and yes, you're like, the okay, before recording, yeah, and you're like, this is clearly the superiorly trained vocalist. Mm-hmm. But I. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of enjoy watching how large the reactions are and how big that physical change that David Hasselhoff gives. So I think it just kind of highlights that change between Jekyll and Hyde, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. But I do recognize that vocally, it's not as strong as it would have been if it came from somebody who was like, mm-hmm. you know, trained in musical theater, you know, yeah. that thing. <laughs> Yeah, But uh, yeah, I appreciate the interpretation of how that change from Jekyll to Hyde went for David Hasselhoff. So didn't hate it. <laughs> Very good. Uh, yeah. Very good. Ryan? I quite enjoyed it, I will say. I just love this show and everything about it. So all of my answers are probably going to be like, it's awesome. What's there to critique? But, and I would agree that 1994 cast recording with different actors is the version I always listen to when I want to hear the soundtrack, which is quite often. But... David Hasselhoff is just such an interesting stage presence in this. Like, something that I do really like about it is everyone around him is being very stuffy, very Victorian, and he is just being himself as this German-Americanized kind of presence. And there's one line in particular where I feel like this actually feels like a deliberate dramaturgical choice, not just him lacking range where it's in the scene with the board of governors where he's trying to pitch them to fund his science. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we don't do things like you do on the continent. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, interesting. So there's like a xenophobia element at play here that he doesn't fit into this stuffy Victorian society. He is an outsider, the continent, because he's from Germany. And that actually makes sense. And he doesn't play that up. He's just being himself. But he knows that the audience is there to see him be himself. I kind of loved at the very end of this recording, he came up to the audience and he said like oh thank you all so much for like he was just so grateful to be on a big stage like this and like you you've seen me on the beach you've seen me with my talking car and now you get to see me live my dreams of being a singer on a big fancy stage in a musical like this and i I just find that so endearing and yeah like i i get that there's problems with this performance but none that I really want to highlight. I just love seeing this guy do this over-the-top campy performance in what is an over-the-top campy show. So it really does suit the tone of the piece. Don't worry, Patrick and I will bring up the misfires of this casting. <laughs> but first, Jill, we'll let you say the last positive word. 
I was going to say, and then you're going to, you're going to shut us down. No, stand behind Ryan and Andrew, but I do have a bit more critique. I guess I'm a bit on the fence because I do agree with Ryan. It was so lovely to just, I knew I was going into watching this. It was David Hasselhoff on stage dressed as Jekyll and Hyde. Like I wasn't going to be like, Oh, what is he going to do with this? Like, I'm so excited to see him jump in. Like I knew it was going to be campy. I know you can see his eyeballs from miles away. So, you know, those crazy eyes are going to come out. <laughs> like, And so I was just like whimsically excited by how campy some of the choices were. But like there was a, some physicality that I actually admired his choices. Like I get there were corny choreographed like choreography wise. I think the trend, some of the transition moments were a bit corny for me. But like knowing that he isn't, this isn't really his like main medium. I thought he, he did a lot with like his body and the physicality. And it is a very, very, very taxing role. I want to say this right off the get-go, all of the leads, I mean, and the chorus too, but all of the leads in this show are, have to be like athletes. Mm -hmm. This is a hard show to perform. And so just, yeah, I was impressed. Like there was time Ryan and I watched it together and I was like, Oh, wow. I, I was just kind of foam finger. Number one fan vibe. <laughs> I said that in a previous episode too. That's like my thing now. So yeah. So that's kind of all I have to say on that. I did like his, it's the first time I saw the musical by the way. And the first time I've like sat with the soundtrack, I've obviously listened to the songs all over, but like, this is my first immersion into what the piece is. Yeah. So I, Liked what he did with it. All right. All Patrick, right, let's fun. do this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I will say, like, Ryan, I absolutely agree that the performance is campy. And in a way that fits the show, because it is a campy mm-hmm. show. Like, I absolutely agree with that. But for me, like, I enter into this, like, is Tommy Wiseau incredible in the room? Yes. Is that a testament to Tommy Wiseau's performance skills? Absolutely not. It's the earnestness with which all of these bad choices that he made. I won't disagree with that. That makes it so incredible. And so, yeah, I think David Hasselhoff is absolutely horrible in this role. But in such a way that is like truly so entertaining that I won't excuse it, but it is like camp. Yeah. So, I mean, what's there to say? Like the text is stilted. Half the time this man is speaking, like breaking down multisyllabic words into singular syllables, like good bye, father, and a beat in between every syllable. Like he sounds like an alien trying to resemble a human, but he has not figured out the cadence of speech yet. When he's singing, he often loses sync with the orchestra, but he's like strong and wrong. I can hear the anxiety of the conductor who's like trying to refine <laughs> wherever Hasselhoff is going. His voice has literally no vibrato, um, nope. especially in the upper register. Yeah, but so I will say... Assaulted. It is harder to get rid of your vibrato than it is to not have one. So no. So there's there's moments again. If these were choices, there's moments where I was like, oh, a straight tone there as a choice would be interesting, but this isn't a choice that's being made. Like this is just what the voices do. What he needs the voice to do in order to sing what he's able to sing. Yeah, and I mean the physicality. It's just all wrong. Like when he kisses his father. Like right at the beginning, he's kissing his father to to wish him off as he's dead. And then he just pops right up and goes, goodbye, father. Just like, like this. Like, what is he that was, movement? He's going down to do mouth to mouth. Right guard. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> 
carries through there, like these huge movements that it's like, what are you doing? Like when he's holding onto Lucy as Hyde and right before he kills her, he's like thrusting his chest as she's trying to get away. Yeah, I'm starting to think maybe this is like Baywatch kind of physicality. That's <laughs> yeah. in. But it's like, what are you doing? Why are your pecs like convulsing? Yeah, that's all he knows What to you. That's the only thing he knows to you. <laughs> Like, so remember in the Spongebob movie, he used that as a projectile yes, launcher. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but yeah, so it, it's an incredible performance, but in all the wrong ways. But I do, like, I, I will always return to it. And it always gives you things to impersonate. And you always discover new things, new choices that make no sense. But uh, yeah, so absolutely god-awful. But in the way Tommy Wiseau in the room is absolutely god-awful. So High praise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'll say for me, I appreciate that performing on Broadway, Broadway was the Hoff's dream and God bless him for living it out. And I mean, he sold the show for I think the last two years of its Broadway run. So God bless him. Godspeed. God bless him. But this was not the role for David Hasselhoff. He would be much better cast as like a Mila's Gloriosis in A Fine Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Because in this, he's doing a mix of trying to be like Mandy Patinkin when he sings, where Mandy, Patinkin, where Mandy Patinkin can jump into that falsetto tenor range really easily and sound really good. And then he's also doing a mix of Rex Harrison in My Fair Lady, where he's talking the whole time. But it's all in the wrong moments. It's like, choose one voice you're trying to emulate, David. Like, just choose one. Either Mandy Patinkin or Rex Harrison. And it's just, oh, it was just, and it's like this role, as Jill points out, it's one of the most vocally and physically demanding roles that is in the Broadway canon for a male to do. Like the confrontation should literally leave the actor panting on the ground because of the throws he has to go through as an actor. David Hasselhoff is literally just doing crunches on stage. Damn you, Hyde! <sighs> That's all he's doing. He's, basically, he's doing the hair, he, he's doing the whip my hair back and forth. He's relying oh my so hard on that one wig to tell the audience I'm changing personality <laughs> versus like physically, like I'll give you one back and watch like some of the actors from like the 30s and the 40s and the black and white movies who have played this role. It's the same actor, but they literally like hunched their back, like changed their full, like made themselves look smaller because Hyde in the book is described as like a smaller, more like impish looking guy. But David Hasselhoff, because he's like a freaking brick house, he can't physically like shrink himself. So he's using this wig behind me. And it's like, look, the wig's covering my face. Now I am Hyde. Put my hair. Now I am Jekyll. And it's like the big tra transformations of him and Utterson at the end, where he's like, watch, I'll take my medicine and I'll change back. And he just kind of does a belly flop on stage. And he's like, look, I am Jekyll now. All I did was flop my head on stage and surprise, I am Jekyll. It's like, no, like, I, like, like, if you're going to do, if you're going to go full physical with this, we need to see a full body, like, convulsion, like, change, like, I, like, the two physical personalities should not look anything the same. You, relying on a wig doesn't work for this character. You need to have a full body change. A strong actor who knows how to use their body and how to contort their body in such a way to transform themselves, like like at least give Hyde a limp or something to change him up a bit more than what he did. Like something new. For me, it's just like, oh, it was just 
so frustrating because I'm like, this role is so good. We'll get into the book later in the script, but it's like the character is written in such a way that an actor can really sink their teeth and show their range in performance. It's just David, God bless his soul, just wasn't built for this role. And he's struggling. Like when he's playing Jekyll and he's singing all these, this is the moment, these big tenor notes, he's reaching for them. And I'm like, oh, buddy, this is not your moment. <laughs> like, God bless your soul. You're trying. I see you trying. But you were set, your agent and, your, and the show producers did not give you the right tools to do this part. You are literally selling it on your name. But I, I, I'll give you a said, hey, Matt, go to Broadway and pay 200 bucks for a ticket to see David Hasselhoff and Jekyll. And I'd be like, no, I'm not paying $200 for that ticket. I'll maybe pay 75 I would too. I got you, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks, so thanks. here's the thing. I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk on something you just said, though, Mac, because okay. I think this is often just I, this might veer us a little bit. But often oh. when we talk about musicals, it's like there's I don't know what historically this has always been the case. We can break down and transform and adapt plays like it's nobody's business and have no mm. problem cracking it open. But anytime we talk about musicals, any type of musical there is this prescribed version of a physicality of a character, or even sometimes we can get into gender or in race that can never be seen differently or played differently. And I actually really admired the fact that Hasselhoff's Jekyll and Hyde were quite similar because quite honestly, it goes back to the crux of his experiment in general of like what happens when we unleash the innermost demons or like sides of us. What does that look like? How does that manifest in society? And it was interesting seeing that his facade, as we see it physically, didn't really change, but he's murdering all these people. And he's, so I kind of, I get what you're saying, but I kind of liked in this version that like, as the audience, obviously like it's campy. So the characters should probably know that it's the same person. But as the audience, it, to me, it was like another tip of the hat to dramatic irony of like, clearly this is the same person and clearly it's David Hasselhoff. But like, you know, and I don't know, maybe I wouldn't say he like sold True. it necessarily That's as both, but I kind of liked that it was the same. I think, I, I honestly think I would feel taken out if I saw a more like schmarmy hide True, but the know. show sets up, like Poole says, I came across his partner, Mr. Hyde, in the living room, and he told me to get out. Poole doesn't recognize yeah, it's Jekyll as Hyde. Clark Kent glasses business. You have to suspend your disbelief that to the characters, semiotically, these people look very different, even if we, the audience. But yeah, I'll go to bat for Jill's point that like <laughs> Hyde is just Jekyll's dark side. He's not a completely different persona mm -hmm. person. Like, what does he do when he has this power? He does, you know, brutal things with the lady that he's attracted to and kills all the people who would not grant him his funding. Yeah. So like, this is obviously, he is just the id of the doctor. He is just, what if I had all this infinite strength and no moral compass, what would I do with it? So uh, yeah, I would agree with Jill that they don't have to be physically distinguished in any kind of meaningful way to be those two sides of the same coin. True, but if you watch, I shared this in the group chat, if you watch the other Broadway clips I sent, the other actors who have played Hyde and Jekyll, 
did do a little bit more. I'm not saying it has to be big physical changes, but just a few more physical changes to themselves to make that change really obvious versus just Hasselhoff doing the hair whipping to, to change himself in his appearance. Either way, Patrick, I see you inching there. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I, if I could maybe oppositely support what Mackenzie's saying, it, because I actually agree that I don't really take issue with this like lack of intense physical differentiation <laughs> between Jekyll and Hyde for the like, it's so psychoanalytic, like you literally said, like, Hyde is the id. Yes. Jekyll. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this goes back to my like kind of question, which is like, is this a choice David Hasselhoff is making, or is this just David Hasselhoff on stage doing <laughs> these things? You know what I mean? Like for me, I don't read the kind of, I don't read that kind of decision in this lack of mm-hmm. or um, reproduction of the same kind of physical vocabulary between mm-hmm. the two characters. And maybe that's me being ungenerous, but, <laughs> but I think it's a lack of generosity that's earned by so many of the choices. Andrew. Um, yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say, have any of you seen Sebastian Bach do this role? No. Okay, I want you all to look at Sebastian Bach do this role and then come back to me about David Hasselhoff. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I say this as like a Sebastian Bach Skid Row fan. You need to watch his performance and then come back. (laughs) Noted. If you are Noted. tuning into this episode, that's your homework. Pause us sure. right now. Pause right now. <laughs> Sebastian Bach, Dr. Jekyll Hyde. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. All right. Right. Get into the rest of the cast though, because it's not yes. just Hasselhoff on the stage. He's surrounded by a plethora of great actors, including in the ensemble, if you noticed, Kelly O'Hara, Tony Ward nominee and winner. Kelly O'Hara is one of the ensemble females in the show. So there I you go. I think she was the understudy too, too, to Emma. Lucy. Oh, Lucy. Uh, oh, really? I think she was Lucy. Or no, sorry. No, Emma. You're right, Emma. Yes, because she has the soprano okay. voice. Yes, it's okay. Emma. But yes, very young, Kelly O'Hara. All right. So let's go through the other ensemble members that stood out to you. Jill, we'll let you lead this one. Yeah. Funny you say that because I I have like two two tiny mentions, but one of them is a large group because I liked the chorus, the ensemble in this piece. I thought they were really like the heartbeat of the entire musical package. And then also, which plays beautifully into them being the heartbeat of the town, right? The kind of Greek chorus, the kind of outside eye welcoming us in as the audience to the, you know, their behind closed doors, all this stuff is happening, but it's actively affecting their environment the most, right? So I just, everyone in the ensemble was like, so on all of their notes and packed with passion and just the grit. Again, I wasn't a huge fan of choreography. We can get into that. So, but I didn't fault the performers for that. I think that, like, I think they did, they were all standouts in my opinion. And I love that. I love when ensemble, when like, Something isn't necessarily an ensemble piece, but then it becomes one because your ensemble is fire. Like that's, I love that. And then I got a shout out, Lucy, played by Colleen Sexton, because I just thought she was lovely, but also like this role is so freaking hard. I mean, and same with Emma, but the stress and pressure that the vocal cords have to undergo singing Lucy Harris's track is like anxiety giving to someone who sings and she was effortless. And I thought she did a really good job of, I love watching performers that I know they're like safely singing a piece. And I don't mean safely like backing off of it. It's like, 
oh girl, you are healthily singing that. And we know that you can do eight shows a week and crush it. Mm -hmm. So I thought she did as much or as little as she could. And it was like 210% basically Mm -hmm. always, but so yeah. So I just, and she rocked the red lipstick throughout the whole show. So yeah, those are my shirt, my shout outs. Wonderful. Andrew, I see you not running along there. You see, it's funny. You mentioned like the chorus. I thought that would be that I had to make something up other than that, because like I was listening to the soundtrack a few days ago. And then funny enough on, as I was getting back here to do get on the call and I'm like, wow, I really love the effects that the chorus has on the show because it really sets that like Victorians, I think somebody used the word like stuffy, judgmental kind of <laughs> deep, dark and brutal kind of society that I really enjoy. And then I think gives the like characters some room to work within and like kind of justifies probably the wrong word for it, but like gives kind of like a context for why all these characters act the way they do. Mm-hmm. And it just builds this intensity that I really appreciate. I find one of the reasons I like this show is because I feel myself driven by everything that's going on, especially when the chorus is saying about like what's happened and how they're reacting to not even just what Dr. Jekyll does, but like the Mr. Hyde actions like murder, murder. Like it's mm-hmm. one of the more intense pieces that I think the just the in general ensemble of the show brings. Mm-hmm. Of course, like the ladies do a fantastic job. Both actresses are incredible vocally and as actresses. But in terms of what really gets my adrenaline pumping, it's just got to be like the entirety of the chorus mm-hmm. and their contributions to the show. Mm-hmm. 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 Love that. Love that. Ryan? So I picked two less obvious ones because I feel like, yeah, a lot of the chorus is obviously great. There's that one tenor guy in the chorus who I don't think had yes. a single named character, yes. but yeah, I don't know his name. tenor. Yes! yes. I, I, you knew that, I don't know his name, but if you're watching, you did a great job, guy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have two other like named characters that I feel like don't get as much love, and I meant to get their actor names so if somebody can supplement their, their performer names. So one of them was Sir Danvers Carew. That is Barry Ingham. Barry Ingham, that's Emma's father. So mm-hmm. he's a pretty understated character role. First of all, he played the Great Mouse Detective. So obviously I have uh-huh. an affection for him. But like, it's you can see this as like a reasonable extension of that kind of like, yes, he's good at playing dapper Victorian men who may or may not be mice uh, based <laughs> on a literary source. But no, I thought he, you know, he's not in it a lot, but he is this interesting grounding presence. Mm-hmm. He is the life that Emma's leaving mm-hmm. behind. He crushes the song Letting Go, which is like not really one that people usually think of as like, oh, yeah, top show like songs here because there's a lot of like more interesting, powerful Mm -hmm. ballads than this. But yeah, like he he does a great job. It is like a really interesting father daughter Mm -hmm. duet. He's also in his what's the song? His work in Nothing More, where it's like the quartet where he's in that like he. He really is this like great like corner anchor piece Mm -hmm. in a lot Mm -hmm. of these songs. And yeah, like obviously there's some like weird patriarchal stuff about Victorian and maybe still to this day wedding rituals about the idea of letting your daughter go, but that's not his fault as a performer. And (laughs) I just thought he's really good. The other one I want to shout out again, even smaller role is good old Simon Stride. who Robert Jensen. Robert Jensen. So he's not in it a lot. I think he only like really contributes to like one or two main songs. He had a bigger role in earlier versions where he was going to play like the head of the red rat or whatever that tavern was. Yeah. So like he, but what I really liked about him in this is that he's not in it much, 
but like you get his whole deal and he mm -hmm. like communicates that very well through very minimal acting mm -hmm. that when he is killed close to the end you're not like hey, who is that that you're like oh my god simon like this actually does fit into the plot and like you kind of understand where he stands mm -hmm. like when we were having the wedding scene they even have the line about like does anybody object to this unit and i'm like oh you know simon's gonna stand up <laughs> and then he doesn't and you're like oh okay but just the fact that i had that thought means that this actor really did make this character feel real and like a part mm -hmm. of the story even if he isn't an integral part of the mm -hmm. actual overarching narrative so shout out to him mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. patrick yeah, I mean, I mean, almost everyone's been set on my like list of options. The first high two like ensemble, great, doing the most with truly god awful choreography. And that ginger <laughs> tenor, whatever your name, I really tried to figure out your name, but it's very impossible under these recording circumstances. But incredible, Jill already spoke to Colleen Sexton's Lucy, which for me was just like tour de force. So I'll just throw up here. I also thought Andrew Rivette's oh, yeah. demo was like beautiful understated but beautiful mm -hmm. and so it can be easy to like kind of lose that especially with Colleen Sexton being this huge like giving this like kind of huge performance mm -hmm. but yeah like Andrea Rivette such incredibly subtle be gorgeous choices especially vocally like I find classical mm -hmm. sopranos they often obviously they sing on the text which in part like the music itself demands but she was really able to like emphasize the spoken elements of text without actually dropping her like lyric timbre while singing like mm -hmm. there were times she would Lots of musical theater actors do this. They like switch to a spoken word and then move back to like singing. Mm -hmm. But the kind of timbre she's singing in, that's so much more difficult than when mm -hmm. you're like belting or using your chest voice. And I was like, oh wow, like that is skillful. Mm -hmm. And her like quiet upper register had so much precision. I was like, I just want to hear you like quietly sing A's and B's and G's mm -hmm. like for hours. Mm -hmm. So yeah, she was great. Yeah. So my shadow is actually somebody who we have not mentioned yet. But it is George Merritt, who sadly passed away in 2010, as the great Mr. John Utterson, who was David Hasselhoff's main scene partner. And I wanted more songs and scenes with this guy, because first of all, this actor, Mr. Merritt, was a fully trained opera singer, was in the revival of Porgy and Bess, like had a big Broadway catalog, great singer. And every time he's on, he pulled the focus in the best way possible. Like his reaction to seeing Hasselhoff flailing on the ground, transforming from Hyde to Jekyll and just his utter despair of that moment. And also when he's got to kill his friend at the end, so well done. And just the desperation he brought to that role. He did such a great job charting the evolution of that character from stoic friend to desperate friend to broken friend by the end. It was a really well mm -hmm. done character arc and really well played. And he was the OG Utterson who kind of stayed with the show throughout the whole run. So he had a long time to kind of refine the role and it was great. And I will say this is, goes into the adaptation, but the in, in the book, Utterson's actually the main character. He is the main driving character of the piece. And when they change focus to it being Jekyll's focused on the story, unfortunately, Utterson's role kind of got a lot, a lot of his plot points got cut. When in, in the book, it's kind of a murder mystery with Utterson kind of trying to save his friend Jekyll from the supposed blackmailer, Mr. Hyde. So I was like, oh, I wish we got, I wish we had more of the book, Utterson, because he's such a fascinating character. And the actor's so good. Mr. George Merritt is so good. I would have loved just to see him be the main character of the piece and really focus on that and have Hasselhoff be like a really good supporting character on the side. But that's just not the way they adapted it. Anyway, we'll, 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 we'll get into adaptation. But yeah, like he just commands the stage. And 
I thoroughly enjoyed his performance, even though he doesn't have a ton of songs every time he's on stage. He is giving it and he's also being so great and attentive to Hasselhoff and is reacting genuinely and is being a really good scene partner. When some actors would be like, the Hoff, you're on your own, man. Like you are doing your own thing. God bless you. God help you. He's I'm doing my own scene partner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But like George Merritt, God bless him. He, you can tell he's really connecting with the Hoff on stage and is really trying to generate this genuine connection between these two characters, this friendship and working partnership. So it's really well done. So I shout out to Mr. George Merritt. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get into our next section, though, which is what was our favorite production or design element? And Patrick, I'll let you start this one. Uh, I really, I was fearing this The choreo. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I honestly think the production, the best examples of like design elements in this piece were like things that were just meeting the brief. Like everything was so wrong for me (laughs) that like I was like, maybe costumes. Like I think like, Lucy's cabaret performance the costuming was great for that like Mm -hmm. that was fantastic that for me is the the design element peak Mm -hmm. yeah I don't even have anything exciting to say I was just like this is supposed to be like a spectacle and the murders are boring like Sweeney Todd did better stage murders in the 70s like what is happening so yeah yeah pass blase Ryan? Yeah, the costumes was one I was also considering. I do quite like the props, like all the fake science-y doodads that are on stage. Those kind of just like, it feels like very like universal monster kind of laboratory stuff. But also, I, I will also shout out the lighting, which I think creates very interesting images with shadows. I'm sorry if I'm stealing that from others while I just named other things. I like so much about this piece. But yeah, the, the lighting, I think, does a very good job of creating this atmosphere of not just like, you know, eerie Victorian urban environment, but also really playing to the contrast of the light and the dark, the good mm-hmm. and evil. And that is so inherent to what this piece is trying to say. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little on the nose, but it's again, part of that spooky, campy feel that I think is just part of this piece's charm. Actually, if I could stack onto that, you know what, I will say, I hated the lighting, which is why I didn't say the lighting. I'm like, it's so on the nose, but it actually had a point of view. So for the fact that it had a point of view, I actually, I I hated it, but the lighting was the best design element. I will piggyback. Lighting was also my pick, particularly for the murder murder scene where they were simulating the rain and the thunder and the lightning. That was really cool. Everything else was kind of okay. Like I, I enjoyed the fact there was a constant red hue going on stage. That was a choice. It was nice, but I mean the lighting was strong in that sense. Like as Patrick said, they made choices with lighting. There was a choice made, and there were certain moments that looked really cool with lighting. Other moments, lighting was a little weird. But there, but the murder, murder moment was where the lighting really stood out. With the umbrellas and the light and the rain and the thunder, it was very atmospheric, very rainy London. It was lovely. Yeah, Andrew. I liked the set. I thought it was cool, and at the best of times, it really brought the scenes to life. I thought it was very spectacular, which is ironic because I think Patrick, you said it. it's not spectacular, but I, funny enough, I want to counter with like it just it was so. At times when it needed to be, I thought it was so beautiful. It really brought that like wealth of a Victorian home at certain scenes. But at the same time, it had the ability to turn into like the dark streets 
where Hyde can come out, play, and commit murder. So, and I mean, it's equipped with pyrotechnics. So, I mean, easy win for me. I'm very easy. If it has pyro, I you get a little <laughs> smile out of me. So, <laughs> early two thousand pyro, where it's yeah. just like an instant fire all the way across the counter. Yeah. Not like it starts here and then goes yeah. there. It's just, no, it's just and fire. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, nice. even that I'll take. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Joe? Yeah, I. it's so funny because I feel like I have little bits of all of y'all in my brain because I was kind of like Patrick. There was nothing that was hitting me in the face of like, whoa, this. Like, I. it was appealing. Like, I kept wanting to watch and every element was doing what it needed to be doing, but it wasn't like, oh my goodness. Like, so I too was like, okay, the costuming, I was kind of feeling or picking through my brain more, but to kind of speak to what Andrew's saying too, I'm always a fan of minimalist sets. They can be like, okay, if the singing or like most of the actors on stage are amazing. Don't have all of them. Minimalist sets I loved because it's like the storytelling and the acting and the choices in the human body are augmented because the set is just the accessory to what's going on stage. So I kind of liked like what you were saying, Andrew, like to me, that was it. There was like focal points of set. Like when they were in the board discussion, there was like, where it was standing and then they were just kind of all sitting around which yeah it doesn't look like much set or blocking was put into that scene but it was kind of like we didn't need that much just for like a human argument to be happening work for us sure yeah but even like when we got back to his studio like it was very just kind of like place placeholders like but not in a bad way of like this is his lab we are now here like it was kind of you know as opposed to big, you know, pieces rolling in and out and color. And I don't think necessarily that was, is a part of this musical, right? It is like the fantastical elements. So yeah, so I kind of like the minimalist set. I, again, wasn't fond of the lighting choices, but going back to what Patrick says, the very pungent choices, whether they be right or not, really just, they went all out. One thing, which is kind of weird and it's tiny, Nothing irks me more when on stage a character is put in a state of pain or discomfort and they dramaturgically do not do diligence to that. And what I did really like is it wasn't all the time because as Hyde grew, his arm was more numb, but Hasselhoff, I don't know who told them the like syringe dramaturg on set props to you because he tied the tourniquet. And he placed, he loaded the syringe properly and like placed it where it needed to go. And he like felt the serum go into his arm. Y'all have seen Grey's Anatomy or ER or stuff where like there's no medical dramaturg on that show and it irks me. It's there's like, no why? medical dramaturg on these medical dramas? What? No, probably not. <laughs> Anyways, but like similarly, like I've seen shows where I won't mention specifically, but someone grabs like a Michelinas carton out of a microwave and they grab it by the hand. You can't grab a Michelinas carton that way. You have to grab it of opposite counter like opposite corners because the steam is burning the hair of your knuckles anyways sorry it's when there's pain or discomfort on stage and it is not acted properly 
bothers me. And I really liked how David Hasselhoff carried out the needle moments. That's that. <laughs> All right. Next, what was the weakest aspect of the production? And I want to start this one. <laughs> Go for it. All right. It's the book and the music by Frank Wildhorn, Leslie Brucus, and Stephen Cunden. Cunden? So, yes. Unfortunately, the songs of this piece are either very generic power ballads or at other times they're like sledgehammer songs that are like trying to drill in the message or the concept of the show without giving the audience any credit for understanding what this piece is. For example, the big song, This Is The Moment, which should be a big character-driven moment, similar to Who Am I from Les Mis. Instead, it is generic to the point where you could take that song and put it in any other show and it could probably work. There's a reason why it usually ends up on every actor's solo Broadway album because it's one of those pieces you can pluck out of the show and have it stand on its own. And it's it just lacks any character drive. And then you have other songs like Facade, which is supposed to be like the ballad of Sweeney Todd, but it's just like sledgehammering you of, do you get the message of the piece? Duality, Jekyll and Hyde, good and evil. We really have a song called Good and Evil. If you didn't get it the first time with Facade of what this show's going to be about. And like, then you have all these other songs that are like, well, we'll get into this more, but it reminds me of better songs from other musicals that are like, I can see you emulating something here. Like, like the big Lucy Emma duet is very similar to the big duet song from Chess that's sung about a man. Not someone else. Yes, you and I. Oh, um, no, wait, that's not the female duet. Uh, no, it's like a very famous big power ballad. From that show, and it's like almost oh, sounds melodically yeah. the same. And then on the book side of it, because this isn't a direct adaptation of the book, instead they're taking elements of the book and then filling the story in themselves, which we'll get more into. When we I talk knew about him so book. well. <laughs> That's it. I know him so well. Thank you. They sound exactly the same. Listen to both those songs, and they'll be like, "Isn't this just the same thing?" Anyway, so because they're not following the book, they're making their own story with elements of the book. They then fill their characters with generic basic traits, like Lucy, the prostitute with the heart of gold, who goes down into the park to listen to the speakers, and she's going to try and better herself, you know. Then you got Emma, who's the dutiful fiancé, who's a little bit like Cosette there, you know, like maybe a little bit more character development than Cosette gets, but, you know, still kind of just there. And then you have the lecherous bishop of Basingstoke, who is raping and having sex with these underage girls, or the socialite who's getting choked down in the background here, Bessie there, who is stuffy and snooty, who sits on all these different bowls and is linked to all the bowls. You know, it's like every generic character trait they could give, they put into this show, which is too bad because if they just did a little bit more work on the show, it made it a little bit more character driven. Like Sondheim says, songs should not be generic. They should come from a place driven by character, like even something like Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma, which, ha- ha- which has become a single in its own right. In the show, it still very much fits Curly. Judd Fry would never sing Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Curly would, though, because he's a 
the cowboy out in the plains. He's embracing the setting around him and something that inform his character. This is the moment. I can't picture John Utterson singing, this is the moment. That is very I much could. a Dr. Jekyll song. I could. No, well, you you, you have a very powerful could. imagination, I suppose, because <laughs> that doesn't seem to fit <laughs> his character. John Utterson could easily sing this is the moment. Just make it be something, Just you have to rewrite the plot. Emma could sing this is the moment right before her wedding day. Like as she's waiting for Jekyll to walk down the aisle, she could belt, go on up there and belt, this is the moment. This is the day where I sent all my doubts and demons on their way. Give me this moment, this one precious chance. I'll gather up my I'd watch, I'd watch the adaptation where every character sings each other's songs. Yeah, I'm for this. <laughs> a whole well, production like, that's just, this is the moment, and every time they do a song. Well, you're, you're, list, you're, you're listening. <laughs> the character stereotypes, like, and aren't those just, like, the stereotypes of human beings? Like, this way, I feel kind like of, this... But, like, if you... This, Kind of, but there's other shows that take those basic character types and then give them more. Fontaine is also a character with, who is the prostitute with the heart of gold, but she has I Dreamed a Dream and a whole backstory that is given to her that informs her journey and gives you more to sink into. Beside, like, besides Lucy being a prostitute, what else can you tell me about her as a character? Maybe that's the point. But I would also say, like, we're going to have a whole question about the female characters <laughs> in this, yeah. so we don't need to belabor this right now. No. <laughs> but I will say, obviously, working with Victor Hugo's text as a background for that character is very different from needing to invent these two characters' whole cloth. Just going to put But her- that's my point. When you're inventing characters from nothing, which mm-hmm. a lot of these characters are invented from nothing, like, they're not in the book. So you're inventing a lot of these characters. And because they're not developing the book enough, or the story enough to really give these characters enough meat to chew on, they then become just basic character trait. Lecherous priest, cross you with the heart of gold, dutiful fiance, dutiful father-in-law who lost his wife and is now nervous about losing his daughter. Like, these can be applied to so many different characters. And unless the writer gives you something more, like a Mrs. Lovett, for example, she is also the East Ender kind of downtrodden character. But she's got so much going on in that performance and so much character work going on there. There's so much to chew on compared to, say, someone like a Lucy, who also comes from that end of London. You know, so there's a lot going on there. So, yes, I see Andrew thinking. <laughs> well, this is probably getting into a debate that's not <laughs> to the question. So maybe I'll just let that thought go and question you later about That'll that. That'll be one. off mic. Yeah, exactly. But I see what you're <laughs> I see what you're saying, but I have mm-hmm. I have questions. <laughs> I love that, Andrew. Well pepper it in with the other questions. What do you got for us, Mac? Well no, this is weakest element, so you guys will have to give yours. Yeah, yeah, I wonder to what extent do you want us to rebut yours if we disagree, or should we just rebut? I'll happily debate you. It's (laughs) just Maybe I, I, off I, mic. I, I'm with Edra on this word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for an hour after the recording. Am I off mic just... toward the end of the night? Sure. Right. We'll happily we happily have a debate. I'll happily. Even I was cut. like, damn, drag <laughs> wild horn, annihilate him, reviscerate him. Like, wow, okay. Like... <laughs> Patrick was all set to like get into this debate and now we're letting it drop. <laughs> Well, Patrick, if you agree, or if you want to say this is your weakest element too, like go for it. But 
Oh, I actually don't think that. Well, sorry. I think I do think the book and lyrics are terrible. Like off from the get go, like there are preachers who kill, there are killers who preach, there are teachers who lie, there are liars who teach. But it's so bad, it's good for me that again, like I think there does need to be a place for bad musicals. And like in terms of bad musicals, I actually think Frank Wildhorn does like better bad musicals than Andrew Lloyd Webber. I want to see more Frank Wildhorn and less Andrew Lloyd Webber. So I won't agree. Come at for the book and the lyrics because there's there are many productions of Jekyll and Hyde I would happily watch, but uh, for me like one of the obvious things that comes to mind is David Hasselhoff, but his weakness is also a strength of the production. So instead, I'm going to scoop Jill because the choreo was awful and not in an interesting way. It was like distracting, excessive. It was introduced in moments where there weren't even songs. Like Lucy's just getting changed to do her performance. She has a little spin to go up to her clothes. And I'm like, why? Why? Like, <laughs> why did that just happen? Wait, is that um, not did, how you get ready? Uh, which I did, yeah, right? Which I did kind of love. It was so bad, but I'm like, who is responsible for these decisions? Like the umbrella choreography. Why were people just like, doing this with umbrellas kind of to the beat at times. Like it felt, I hate that I'm using this as an insult, but like there's no other way I can describe it, but like bad community theater where it's like a person just like, I'm hitting beats and we need a movement for each beat. And that's what choreo is. And if, and we're going to use every moment. And I was like, there's excellent community theater choreography. There is. This is just very like, someone's first shot at the, yeah. Yeah. If I can piggyback, because Cat's out of the bag and Patrick scooped me up, choreography was also my weakest element. And I will say to that, Patrick, it to me read there was a massive miscommunication between choreographer and cast. And when I say this, it's not like, oh, we don't understand. It's either I guarantee you two things happen. One, the choreographer was like, this is the choreography and this is the choreography. So there's no wiggle room. Exactly. Or, and this is what bothers me as someone who I would say I'm a strong mover. I can dance. I can act like a great dancer. That's, I'll go go with that. Where there isn't like honoring the bodies and people you have in a space to then place movement that'll fit everyone. So I totally agree with you, Patrick. There was moments where I'm like, A, why is there choreography in this moment? This isn't earned or this isn't even taking up space. If anything, it's distracting from like the power ballad that's happening that we should be paying attention to anyways. We don't need filler. Stop. I was like, oh. But then also in the moments where everyone was dancing or moving, there were folks that just like, yeah, weren't doing the proper choreography or weren't. And it wasn't like a choice of that. I think it just was like, oh, I don't think the choreographer wasn't generous, basically, of like, mm-hmm. let's make it a move where everyone does have their own take on it, or let's make it a move where everyone can do it. And so then it is like that force. And but honestly, again, to go back to chorus being my like, yes, chorus, like the fact that they are still a lot of our standout musically and acting wise, like, good for you, because choreography can sink the other two trip the other two threats real real easy so yeah yeah choreography very interesting mm-hmm. yeah there was this one moment that the choreo is objectively terrible in facade where they all like put their hand up on the take your pick beat, beat, 
And I was like, this is objectively ridiculous. It's <laughs> objectively but, bad art. Yes. yes. <laughs> no, yes, there is. But the the ensemble is so committed and actually so like on it that I was like, wow, I feel kind of emotionally moved by this ridiculous choreography. <laughs> so yeah, the ensemble. If it creates aesthetic uh, pleasure, then how can it be bad art? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is what makes camp good it's like that, that, that <laughs> like cats it's so bad it's good disagree <laughs> <laughs> tune in for Andrew's thoughts on cats Coming yes. next week. I'm expecting a lot of sensor beeps uh. <laughs> bring your bottle of wine yeah. <laughs> Andrew what is your weakest moment, though, of the show? Because you never actually did give your weakest moment. You know what? I say this liking the show. Okay, if I said lyrics, that's not book, is it? I'm not a musical theater person. Book. So book is the scenes between the songs. Lyrics okay. are the words in the song. Then the lyrics. <laughs> I thought it was not even just like the way the rhymes went or how forced certain things were. I was just kind of, and again, I'm not a musical theater, like, I'm not avidly watching musical theater. Not that I don't like it, I just don't seek it out actively. Mm -hmm. But again, listening to it over, like, the past week, I'm like, why don't people really dig these songs? And I feel as though there's too much plot in them. Like, they don't feel... Like, they're not catchy. Mm -hmm. They're not... Funny enough, Mac, I would say they're not generic enough. (laughs) <laughs> They're so specific to what's going on in the story. And I'm just like, there's no chorus. There's no beauty in the lyrics, or some of them anyway. Like, there's like, you know, in a lot of the songs, like, this is the moment, or in his eyes. Beautiful, beautiful songs. But then, like, the rest of it, it's just like, this is the plot, and we're going to sing things that we can talk. And I'm like, I don't need this. That's fine. They're trying to pull a Les Mis where they're singing everything, but they didn't yes. quite understand what, like, like how Les Mis perfectly turned those speaking moments into really good musical motif moments that keep coming back. It was just, let us sing these notes. And yes. Versus just having a really good dialogue scene between... Utterson and Jekyll. We're gonna have to have them sing about how he just got rejected, and it's like exactly just talk. <laughs> yeah, you have like, book scenes in this show. Talk right, and that was my thing. And again, I say that liking the show, there were just <laughs> things that I'm like, you don't need to sing this. This doesn't need to be like the one thing that always makes the hair on like the back of my neck stand up is when they go nay, 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 nay. I'm just like, just say oh. nay, just say nay. <laughs> It's not just, it's nay, 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 nay. Absolutely, positively, <laughs> nay. And one abstention. <laughs> and one abstention. <laughs> and I'm just like, just a nay each is fine. Like, we're yeah, good. You get a nay and you get a nay. My favorite is like the full, like, what was it? Like two beats before the absolutely, positively, beat. nay. Nay. Like, like, if there's any doubt. If there, yeah. <laughs> That's where I find like the show kind of lacks. I'm just like, find moments where you don't need music to make a point. And they have so. those moments, like the conversation between Utterson and Hyde when, before before he re- returns to Jekyll. That is a book scene, and it is great. Fantastic. As a book scene. As a basic scene. That did not need to be sung, and they knew that didn't need to be sung. Thank God it wasn't sung. <laughs> but then there are other I books. Agree. Like, just 
Yes, you shouldn't wear your pearls out so late. There are dangerous men around. Choke. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. All right, all right. for that character. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. But I still think, like, I would take those terrible book scenes over the things that could have been book scenes but weren't. True. I agree. I Personally. Agree. Yes. <laughs> Ryan. So there is nothing wrong with this piece at all. It is flawless. Fight me. I know. Okay. I hear what most of you are saying, except for Mac. But I have, th- <laughs> just like how I had three favorite songs, I will do three slight nitpicks that just bug oh. me. They're none of the things that you've all mentioned so far. Three nays. Three nays. You only nay, get three nays. Nay, nay, nay. <laughs> the first one, this isn't really about the production itself, but it's one we occasionally talk about on this show. Not a fan of this pro shot and the way the filming of this piece was put together with way too much like split screen crossfade like i like seeing the whole stage i like seeing where characters are in relation to each other in his eyes which is my favorite song in the whole show was just entirely we have lucy on one side emma on the other and i really couldn't see how are they interacting spatially with each other and like things like that just kind of bug me it's really not a big deal it doesn't sink the it doesn't sync that song that I still think is really great and really well performed by these two ladies, but stuff like that, you know, if I have to nitpick something and then two other things, that'll be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, thing number two, the development process of this piece I know has had like an interesting rocky history and some songs mm-hmm. get swapped out occasionally. Mm-hmm. I don't like that instead of Bring On The Men, we have Good and Evil because Bring On The Men is an awesome song. Yeah, yeah, Andrew, you're I agree. in agreement. A hundred percent. So yeah, good 100%. and evil is fine, but bring on the men is great. Yeah. Fine is a generous way of putting it's, that song. It's again, it's too it's very on the nose. I, I don't have a problem with the on the nosedness of the songs. Again, it's just part of the fun that like all, everything like always comes back to. There are themes here. Do you get it? But <laughs> I, but bring on the men. <laughs> <laughs> Bring on the Men is such a good song because, like, it's not really about the themes. It's just like, hey, in the middle of this piece, we're going to introduce one of the female characters with a big burlesque number where she, mm-hmm. you know, is unapologetically horny, and that's okay. Yep. And it's just great. And when we were watching it, because as Jill mentioned, this was her first time going through it, I, I was like, okay, it's coming up. This song, like, I think this should be in your book because it's really good. And then they just started getting evil. I'm like. Are they are they gonna do it after the the, the really good song? Uh, okay, this this is one of one of the reasons why I always listen to the other album because uh, yeah, <laughs> very very good song. Not in this version. And my thing number three, and this might also be kind of part of the raucous development history because I have heard and seen slightly different versions of the ending. But the ending is so anticlimactic, which is a shame because, like, this is such like a, yeah, it's, he's stabbed, and they're like, oh, die in peace, I guess, and then it's just over. There's no big final like, number. There's, we didn't even get, a, like, a reprisal of facade or murder, murder. Like, wouldn't that have been appropriate there? Very or, much so. Like, they're emulating Sweeney or, or, Todd. There's a final ballad of Sweeney Todd yeah. at the or, end of the show after Sweeney dies. <laughs> Or something slightly different, like uh, this is the moment reprise, like this is the moment that your experiment ends. I don't know. I'm just spitballing Very here. Good. I don't write musicals, but like, yeah, I just feel like you kind of, any way you slice it, no pun intended, you just get <laughs> stabbed and it's over. And it's like, okay, I, like I was really enjoying it. And I'm, 
not like you know then we got the cool Hasselhoff at the end as himself and then I was smiling again pretty soon so it was fine but yeah it's it just something about this musical that it could use a better like big finale song so mm-hmm. those are my three things great very great. much agreed I think I looked over to Ryan I was like is that the end because then the lights just the lights just go down and I'm like oh okay. well it actually isn't too far off from the book ending where yeah Jekyll just dies he commits suicide at the end and they find him dead in his lab that he locked himself in to protect everybody but and like that's fine like I, i'm not even yeah. saying like you know i'm not even talking about fidelity here or right. it should have been more or less faithful mm-hmm. i'm just saying that as a musical you kind of do it want a big closing number yeah yeah but Great. it isn't a musical yeah. and the piece is like it's a wild one musical it has all these big ensemble numbers that <laughs> frame key moments so like mm-hmm. on its own terms it absolutely should have that yeah mm-hmm. yes agreed all right Last question for this first part. Oh my goodness, we've been going here. So what would you recommend, sorry, would you recommend this production to others? Ryan, as our resident adaptation professor process, as you complete your doctorate, give us your thoughts. Would this end up on a syllabus in an adaptation (laughs) theory? Uh, No, it wouldn't end up on a syllabus because... The only reason it would is because I freaking love it. And that's not a good <laughs> enough reason to put it on a syllabus. Like there's no real educational value in watching this. It's like, an adaptation. And, and name five musicals that aren't adaptations. I bet <laughs> you can. So yeah, I think there are better musicals for demonstrating the process and mechanics of adaptation dramaturgy than this. One. There are interesting things to talk about the way they've changed it from you know, the original source material that we will get to in the following question. So I will not comment, but yeah, I don't think syllabus wise, this isn't, I it would have to be really self-indulgent to just be like, I love this show <laughs> students. And now you have to hear me talk about how much I love it, but they could just, Hey, tune into this episode if they want to hear that. So no, it won't make a syllabus. That doesn't mean I don't recommend it because of course I recommend it. I love this show. Now, I would recommend that if people like, you know, just want to like listen to the songs because the songs are great, listen to the other cast album as opposed to the Hasselhoff album. It's just better singers, better song selections, as I just mentioned in the previous question. And yeah, it's just like really just great. But yeah, I think this show is just so fun. It's a great time. My first exposure to it actually was Vanier College Productions, which at New York University, where mm-hmm. Mac and Andrew and I all did our undergrads, we, yeah, they, they had this like small kind of like extracurricular theater company called Vanier College Productions that wasn't like affiliated with the theater department at all. And they did a production of this when we were in either like second or third year. And that was, I had never heard of Jekyll and Hyde the musical before. And I <laughs> went on understudy night. Which, because like, yeah, they because it's like an educational sort of or like extracurricular thing, they really build in nights for the understudies to get to perform, regardless of whether or not they're called for like understudy reasons. Mm-hmm. So, and like the guy who performed Jekyll and Hyde blew me away. It was like shocking to me that he wasn't like the lead who I never did get to see. But and yeah, so I instantly like ran home and listened to all both of the cast albums and like found all kinds of like YouTube clips of this that I could find, and I've just been in love with it ever since. And this was my first time while I'd listened to the Hasselhoff album before. This was my first time watching it all the way through. And I had a good time. So, yes, recommended wholeheartedly. Everybody should watch this. It's fun. Perfect. Jill? Yeah, I agree with what Brian is saying. I also want to say I would recommend watching this if you are interested in going into musical theater. Because, and I'm not saying because, oh, this is a musical theater piece that is everyone wants to star in. 
because this is a perfect piece. I think of like, we're talking, we're breaking down the book, we're breaking down the lyrics, the libretto, the choreography. There is a lot of production meets or doesn't meet rather the book in like in this musical, like there's a lot of like awkward moments that like the words you're going to say, this phrase is awkward or like the way that this might be choreographed might be awkward, but guess what? You're in a musical and you got to make it believable and you got to live it and you got to love it. And like, you can make it as big and, or as passionate as you want. I just think it's a good piece of like, like we talked about too, the lyrics, like there's so much plot in those mm-hmm. lyrics. So that's also a wonderful exercise in how do you tell exposition through song, you know? And, you know, if your body is told to move this way, but you're singing this and the brain and the body are doing opposite things, well, sometimes you might have to do that. And I think also there's a lot of, yeah, like I think, Mac, you are kind of, poo-pooing the fact the songs were you could take them out of and there's no sort of drive but I think that's what makes a lot of people have something from Jekyll and Hyde in their musical theater book because exactly because it can kind of be that blanket statement and then what is you as Jill or you as Mac bringing to this character to then slay that audition right so like Mm -hmm. I feel there's this really weird balance of specificity yet general or g- genericness mm-hmm. I that this musical can kind of muster up for performers. So mm-hmm. yeah, watch it. Watch it if you're into musicals, if you want to do musicals. And like Ryan was saying, if you want to just have a good time. But I'm an interest, I'd be interested in seeing other pro shots now too. Like I do want to see a different Jekyll and Hyde. David Hasselhoff wasn't terrible in my opinion, but yeah, I'd want to see other versions as well, but definitely give this one a watch. Sure. Yeah. Andrew. Yes. Heck yes. If for no other reason, than as Ryan said, it's fun. It's a good time. The songs are, there are a few in there that are really enjoyable to watch both because they're interestingly done both vocally and in terms of acting. Thanks Hoff. But like it's, <laughs> I even just think as a show, it's it's enjoyable. I'm having a hard time justifying why I like it, <laughs> but I like it. There's just something about it. And I think maybe it is because it's David Hasselhoff being the Hoff. That's endearing about it. But I <laughs> I find it in a fun production. And I went through a, a good period of time where I'd watch it fairly periodically. So I'd be... I would be lying if I said that it wasn't worth at least a watch, even if you end up disliking it, because even in disliking it, you're going to enjoy that you disliked it. (laughs) (laughs) Patrick. Would I recommend this production to others? I mean, I think this is one of the worst lyrics ever written and some of the most generic music ever written with one of the worst performances I've ever seen. So would I recommend this production? Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> question i would recommend production in the same way i would recommend the room tommy wise is the room to someone yeah i mean this was the perfect segue from andrew's comment even if you hate it you're gonna love hating it yeah i first watched this in high school actually with another contributor to some of the cup reviews carly billings and a bunch of people and we were basically playing a drinking game or am i allowed to say that on this <laughs> yes um, yeah. With a bunch of things. And it was a blast. Like, this is like, it's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, 
Hell yeah. It's so bad, it becomes good again. So yeah, 100% I would recommend this. You absolutely have to watch this. It might be one of my strongest recommendations ever. But yeah, because it's so god awful. It's working. <laughs> Patrick's coming to our side. How's that beer, no, I was, Patrick? I was, I, was, I was always, I was always on I'm... that side. <laughs> you can check my notes. <laughs> yes, in the way I would recommend the room. <laughs> yep. Um, and that, that's my, my note too. That's my note too. Even though I am critiquing it and not giving it the most glowing praises, of course you should still watch this. This is a fun musical theater pro shot. Crack open a beer or a glass of wine and just sit back and have fun with it. Like this is just meant to be, I don't think it was intended to be fun. I think this was meant to be a very dark, thought, thoughtful piece is what the writers were going for, but they missed the mark and they made something else entirely different that, you know, works for what it is. And just, just go on out there and have fun with it. Like that's all you can do with this piece is just turn off the brain and just enjoy some theater. Because, you know, we don't get a lot of, I mean, we get a few musical pro shots, but not that are like full on film productions, you know, like they're not as frequent. So because of rights issues and everything else. So it's when you get something like this and also it's the Hoff. I mean, as much as he is not great in this role, he's just fun. So just enjoy the Hoff. Enjoy it. Have a drink. And I also figured out where Utterson could sing. This is the moment. <laughs> My oh, God. My brain figured it out. Have him sing it to Jekyll before his big final pitch to the Board of Governors. Just change a few pronouns from this is the or this is your moment is basically what you'd have to make it as. But there you go. Utterson could sing it. He's just not that guy. He's not bombastic like that. Jekyll, 100%. Make it a sincere performance, right? A sincere song, not a bombastic song. Either way, besides the point. All right, let's get into the next part, though, which is more text-based for this show, which is, first question is, if you have read the Robert Louis Stevenson 1886 novella, what are your thoughts on this musical as an adaptation thereof? Or if you have not read it, does watching this musical make you want to read it? Andrew, we'll let you start this one. So I have the fortune of being able to say that I read it. And how do I feel about this adaptation? <laughs> It is in bits and pieces, but I think there's this element of Stevenson's book or novella that that it just doesn't have. And like you said, it's told from an entirely different perspective. It's a different type, like it's a different genre of story. So I, again, I like this show and I like the novella, but I don't necessarily like link them in the same thought just because it's so different. But it's kind of like, different in the way that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is not the horror Frankenstein that you'll see on any screen or sure. that Dracula is not the Dracula you'll see in any screen. So is it the same? No, but that doesn't make it inherently bad. It's just mm. a different interpretation. Or the Dracula in Frank Wildhorn's Dracula. He <laughs> also had done Dracula the music. That is true. That is true. I did true. not it... know that. <laughs> it is also horrible and oh, no. I recommend you listen to <laughs> yeah. it. Gotta watch it now. Yeah. Andrew, I will piggyback off you because I also read the book growing up. I was the nerdy theater kid who read classic literature. Because, you know, that's Mac for you. 
But yes, so I read this, and as previously stated, this musical is not a direct adaptation at all. As I said before, Utterson was the main driving force. They totally switched it to now being Jekyll as the focal character. And in doing so, they Disneyfied, neutered the piece, and took the teeth out of the story, basically. Because in the book, Hyde is a horrible person who beats and tramples a little girl to death in the first chapter and then is forced to pay the family because onlookers corner him and force him to write a check, which he writes as Jekyll, which kind of tips the characters off of, oh, something's weird here. He then commits the murder of Sir Danvers Cairo, where he beats him to death with his cane and the cane breaks. And then not as a piece because it's something, it's a cane that Utterson gave Jekyll. So very violent character in the book. Horrible human being. And his reason for making the serum to is not for this noble cause of my father, the poor people of the asylum. It is, I'm having these lustful urges and I'm going to slum it in the East End. And as a man of my position, I cannot be doing that. So to suppress these urges, I want to create the serum that will help remove those urges from me. Not as noble of a cause. So when they change, so when they, did this musical and they changed the focal character to Jekyll, they had to make him a little bit more likable. Even Hyde isn't as bad because the people he kills off in the show are all horrible socialites. So Hyde isn't even really that bad, except for Lucy. He kills Lucy. That's the one really bad moment for Hyde. Everything else is like, oh, darn, he killed the lecherous priest, the stuffy British socialite, the snippy other male socialite with the bowl haircut. You know, like, People who, like, we don't care that, that the guy gets a cane shoved through his face. You know? It's one of those things where, like, it's just, unfortunately, when they adapted this piece, instead of going for it and saying, let's make a piece that's really nasty and gives and, and really gives a character that is really, like, really either plays into the mystery element, which is something that a lot, not, most musicals don't do murder mystery, which is too bad because that is a really kind of cool concept. I'd love to see them do. Sweeney Dog gets into it. But the fact that we, you could have gone even further Jekyll and Hyde because the whole mystery is why is Hyde blackmailing Jekyll until you realize, oh, they're the same person because they're never on screen together. So it's really interesting. But anyway, so I'm just like, it's, well, as Andrew said, it's not an adaptation of the book. They took elements of the book and then did their own piece. Which is fine. It's just, if you're, for me, I'm just like, the book was so much better. <laughs> the book was such, a, it was so much better. It, had, it was more compelling. It's, it's almost like a 18th century version of a Dan Brown book. The chapters are relatively short. You're flipping through them. It's got really good pace and mystery to it. You want to know what's going on. And this, it's like generic love triangle, man dueling himself story. It's like, okay, all right. <laughs> Not the same thing at all, but let's go for it. I mean, once again, this is one of the most adapted pieces of literature of all time. There is a version that was done in Edinburgh Fringe where the character of Jekyll is actually played by a woman and Utterson is her fiance. And there, there's that version, which is really cool. And I'm like, I would watch that because at least that's a really cool departure from the source. This is just kind of like a generic departure from the source. And we'll get more to that with the female characters that they add to this piece. But like I'm like either, like either swing for the fences and go big in, in in adapting this, or stick to the book because going generic like they did it was just okay you did it 
Ryan, I see you're yeah, like biting at the I, bit. I've been wanting to jump at all of these bits. I too have read the novella. I read it in a class, like an English elective that I took during undergrad. Oh. And so you are right about one thing, Nick, is that this is a very widely adapted story that people know very well. And for that reason, I don't think you could get away with the classic John POV character murder mystery who could be this mysterious Edward Hyde because we know everybody <laughs> in the world knows that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. So you're not going to get the same kind of pot boiler that the original novella was in its time, where you actually will be shocked by that big twist reveal at the end. So I think one of the strengths of this piece, knowing that this is a very frequently adapted hot pop culture commodity that even if people haven't read, they already know the twist ending. They decided let's do something different. And I believe other adaptations prior to it, this have taken the similar angle as well, but they're like, who is Henry Jekyll? What can we learn about him? Maybe it does mean completely changing his motivations from the book, but I like his kind of new motivations. The father thing is a little silly. I don't know if we need the fact that it's because of his father but like again camp is fun but i do like i really love the idea of the altruism of why he's doing this that this there is like m medical properties to like it's again it's like very pseudoscientific about the whole like ah there is a good and an evil side in every human soul like okay maybe a victorian scientist would actually believe that obviously like that's not a thing that would hold up to any peer review today and maybe that's why he doesn't get his funding i love the idea that he's like you know, it's. Have any of you ever seen the Hugh Jackman movie, The Fountain? Darren Aronofsky directed yeah, it. Of yeah, of course. Yeah, I see him as very similar to the Henry Jekyll of this yeah. musical. As I have this batshit scientific theory about how I will cure death because I'm sad that my wife died. And then, yeah, and obviously that movie goes in very different trippy directions. There is a magic glowing tree. It's great. I love it for different reasons from why I love this. But but yeah, I would love to see Hugh Jackman play in Jekyll and Hyde the musical. And yeah, he, unlike David Hasselhoff, he has a lot more musical theater experience and he'd probably do a really good job. Side tangent. But I think this, yeah, getting into the psychology of this character, giving him an altruistic motive that ultimately backfires because he's not an inherently altruistic person is an interesting way of playing with the themes of this story that, you know, behind the facade, there is this dark seedy underbelly that, like I mentioned the id earlier, but yeah, there is a very popular psychoanalytic interpretation and critique of the original novella as they really went very explicit in this musical, but I think it works. And like, I don't need hide to be the big villain that he is in the original because i almost think it's more interesting that he kind of becomes this murder robin hood who really like goes out against the socialites and the people who are doing legitimately bad things but oh your methods are complicated and i don't know how i feel about this you probably shouldn't kill them but also they're terrible and then they do like the kind of classic marvel villain thing where okay but make him kill someone innocent so we know he's really bad because otherwise he's making too many good points but yeah <laughs> anyway i like the book just fine but i don't have this kind of joy that i get watching the musical <laughs> from the book so i am fully in support of the fun choices and adaptation that it makes yeah i mean so ryan you may actually get your wish of a hugh jackman jekyll and hyde because the mu musical is being made into a movie right before covid the writer finished the screenplay and apparently Hugh they've been shopped around, so they could get Hugh Jackman to play Jekyll. <sighs> you got my hopes up, like it was already a done deal. But 
Okay, I also Hugh, bought that. My man, if you're going. watching. Yeah. Hugh, but if you're I mean, watching this, sign on to that project. You'd be great. I mean, he's going to be busy doing Wolverine one more time. But, what? You know, I thought he was done. done. Oh my God. No, he's coming back for Deadpool 3. <laughs> okay, go on. Either way. So, yes, so there you go. So, wonderful. Yeah, because Ryan, yeah, no, I mean, I agree. The definitely, the cat's out of the bag on who Jekyll and Hyde are. There's no, it's like, it's like Phantom of the Opera. The original book is a mystery book of who is the Phantom. We now all know who the Phantom is. He's a murderous creep, you know? But anyway, we, you and I can talk off mic too, because there's so much more we get into on this topic. <laughs> but go for it, Jill. What is what, what are your thoughts? Did you read the book as well? Because so far we're three people out of five who've read the book. No, I have not read the book. I'm actually really behind on Jekyll and Hyde lore <laughs> in total. Like, so yeah, I, I need to because I'm someone to, it's so funny. My dad has a thing of like, if a book it exists in a movie, I'm never reading the book. I'll only watch the movie because it's like, you know, fast and it takes all the good parts. I'm the opposite. Like if I find something was in a different medium, whether it be like it was a play, but it was actually movie first or it was a movie, but it was actually a book first. I usually go down the rabbit hole of like, how do I get my hands on the another adaptation of this piece? So I'm excited to... I, I definitely think I am. I'm going to like add it to my spooky season list of find, get a copy of Jekyll and Hyde novella and just, you know, curl up so with a. What yeah. you're saying is you're launching the Cup Book Club and our first oh, book will be the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe off mic. Yes, maybe <laughs> off mic. No, I, because especially knowing, like, we're going to get into this too, but like Emma and Lucy aren't in there either. And what you guys are spoiler alerting hardcore of what's already in the novella. Um, Turns out just one broken cane. Yeah, so I'm like a kid in a candy shop. Like, I want to go in and read. And the thing I like about this piece, I haven't said it yet, but I thought about it a lot watching it, is as much as, sure, the lyrics aren't great, that we've poo-pooed X, Y, Z, but... I do think like there's a lot because there's not a lot maybe going for this musical. There could be some really radical like takes on characters and adaptations from this musical. Like I kept saying to Ryan, I was like, I want to see like an LGBTQIA plus charged Jekyll and Hyde where like you have so many different bodies and ages on stage, just like subverting everything. Like, Maybe like, obviously you'd have to think through and do your due diligence of how you're altering things. But like, I think this would be a cool musical to maybe start there or even take bits of the novella and this musical and make it into something like that. Like I kept saying the whole time watching it, it was like, oh my God, a female Jekyll. Oh my God, a female Jekyll. Like, and I get it. It would disrupt some parts of the like story. You'd have to kind of jig around, but yeah. So I guess long-winded question I want to or answer I want to read the novella and I want to kind of like make my own Jekyll and Hyde adaptation kind of thing like it's public domain Jill go for it yeah so there the you go the <laughs> isn't but the novella yeah the novella <laughs> is so you can adapt it in your own way yeah so you probably write way better power ballads that are less generic well maybe maybe <laughs> I'll sing them but I don't know if I can write them but yeah you and Patrick can team up. Yeah, Hugh Jackman, if you need a Lucy, uh, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Patrick, did you read the book? All right, first, I just feel like I have to jump off of what Jill just said. If a rich producer 
is listening to this. First of all, hi, how are you doing? But cast me as Lucy in Jill's like, yeah, gender fuck Jekyll and Hyde because I know I could kill those songs. But anyway. Do you want to be the Lucy to my Jekyll? Absolutely. Absolutely. Done. It's closed. But um, yeah, I actually have not read the novella, even though I love Gothic literature. Uh, Mm -hmm. I can't say the musical makes me excited to read the novella. And in part, also knowing contextually that some of the things that I actually do find thematically potentially most interesting, including the love triangle and also the, yeah, kind of complex way that Dr. Jekyll is ostensibly acting as like this kind of good Samaritan and then Hyde is evil. The fact that's actually a way that it's more explicitly just Dr. Jekyll looking to like kind of figure out what to do with his id. I'm almost less interested (laughs) in novella. Like I actually think the scaffolding of the show is really interesting. (laughs) It's just that the way it plays (laughs) out that it's like god awful. But I also love, I'm glad this god awful version exists. But yeah, so no, I've not read the novella. I am not particularly excited to read the novella even though I love gothic literature and I will and I'll just add here because I can't like I don't think there'd be another moment to really bring this up but some of what Ryan was saying I was struck by I guess this is part of the decision of the adaptation but the fact that Hyde was killing all of these people that I was actually rooting for him during like almost all of these kills except for like you say the classic Marvel moment like kills Lucy to establish I am bad but especially like starting from the beginning, this is where I actually feel like maybe the thematic content was least thought out in the piece. But like, of course, we should root for him killing a pedophilic rapist. Like, like I thought that was such a strange choice. That was like the beginning. I was like, are we supposed to establish him as evil? Like, I'm still unsure what the piece thinks about those initial murders. And I think that's interesting then for a director because he could do really kind of interesting things. But it strikes me that the, this is not the content of the piece itself and is instead it is instead an, a decision for the adaptation because the whole time I was I was really trying to figure out like what is the piece's relationship is this an explicit critique of power is this like yeah I'm I still don't think Frank Wilder Horn knows what he wants to say with those initial decisions mm. but luckily it kills Lucy so we all know hide bad but <laughs> yeah I would also be interested in seeing another adaptation that actually maybe looks at maybe Hyde is a hero um like mm-hmm. from a particular point of view yeah yeah all right next question something jill already alluded to which is the female characters of emma and lucy were new additions to this musical with no antecedents in the original novella how does their inclusion in the love triangle with jekyll slash hyde impact the story jill i'll let you start this one yeah again i'm kind of coming out of the dark out of the woods into the Jekyll and Hyde forest. So I don't really have any other way of viewing or witnessing this piece of literature. And I guess I am biased in my response of like both of these women, I would love to play either Emma or Lucy on stage. So anytime I see that, I'm like, I I kind of watch scenes through their lens And I think, again, I think this is going to go back to what I was saying is there's a lot I think you can do with these two additions. It's not like, okay, we're just giving our protagonist a lover, a lover. No, it's like you're giving these two women who have their own duet, like they have power ballads on their own. But then like a lot of us mentioned, what is it? In Your Eyes? Is that what it's called? In His Eyes. Yeah, In His Eyes. Yeah. So there you go. Case in point of like, In Your Eyes, because both the women are just so like, 
like even the watching that scene, like they're just standing and giving, like there was a lot of agency that these women have so for p- characters that were kind of created for this adaptation. I think there's a lot you can dive, like you can build upon kind of what Patrick's saying, like scaffolding of these women, like that add and take away from Jekyll and Hyde. Because I think what's neat is we see, not only do we see Jekyll's perspective, obviously we see Hyde's perspective, but then we see both of their perspectives with women or both of their perspectives with love. And obviously like love in in like a political sense or like a science sense, sure, sure. But like in the intimate sense, we don't get just one snapshot of that with one other person. We get it twice and we get it in different scenarios. We get like a carnal love. We get like a gentle love, which, yeah, I think by making those two different pathways, two different people, the fact that he is kind of split as two different people is like, really fascinating to me. And I even said to Ryan too, it was like, it's rare that we get like a female duet where they're not like building towards something or like disagreeing about something, or it's just, you know, that they're both kind of pillars in the piece and like to his life in some shape or form. I'm going on a tangent. What was the question again? (laughs) Sorry, Jill, just I think that's actually a great observation because like Mac, you compared it to the song from Chess where these two women are like rivals, like romantically. Mm -hmm. And what I kind of do love about Lucy and Emma is they don't even know about each other. They don't know about, yeah. Like they they both represent like, Mm -hmm. should I just get into my answer? Jill, were you done? Yeah, no, no, go, go, go. Snowball, yeah. Okay, so back it up a bit. So in that same class where I read this in undergrad, it was interesting because... It was brought up, not exclusively, but one of the things that was mentioned in lecture is it was used as a case study for how do you do a feminist a feminist analysis of a text that does not include female presence? Because like it's very obvious how you can do a feminist analysis of something that's explicitly feminist and has characters who enact feminist action or activism in some way or some sort of you know, you're not getting an A plus for doing a feminist analysis of a doll's house because, okay, there's, you know, it's pretty, pretty laid out for you, but there isn't like these like, you know, interesting female characters. So, you know, the professor kind of drew our attention to, as far as I can find, the only female character to actually speak in this is the maid who shows up for two seconds in the yes. original when novella. the murder. And yeah, it's and like so and it's more just like, okay, instead of thinking about what is Stevenson, the author God, trying to say about women in society, he's probably not even thinking about it, but it was this window into how can we read the culture that birthed this text mm-hmm. through the presence or lack thereof of female characters. And me as like 18-year-old Ryan, that blew my mind. I thought that was so cool. So <laughs> then, you know, like a year or two later, when I saw the musical at Vanier College, I was like, whoa interesting choice to put in this like these two female characters this love triangle subplot <laughs> love square i guess is weird because there's two of him which we'll get into more in a second but like not that either of them are pining for hide but yeah i thought it's like okay it seemed to me like interesting that it's not that it's not just the maid and we're not being invited to read the absence of women as something meaningful they're like okay it's the 90s we're gonna have women in this thing in fact we're gonna have two women to i guess overcorrect, and they will each represent the two sides of him that 
he just like there's the Jekyll and the Hyde, there is the good lover and the bad lover. And what I kind of felt as a missed opportunity there is neither one of them is the bad lover. Like I felt like we were trying to have a girlfriend for Jekyll and a girlfriend for Hyde. Mm-hmm. But Lucy is, you know, it's the, you know, sex worker with a heart of gold stereotype or stock character here, but there's nothing bad or morally compromised about her. Just her social station makes people see her that way. So I feel like the real missed opportunity here is Lucy, sorry, not Lucy, Emma, who is this kind of paragon of social virtue, the perfect daughter to marry, you know, the scientist who all the earls and dukes and whatever are like, you should be marrying me because I am richer than he is. Like, <laughs> I would have liked to see her have a dark side to show yes. that there is the yes. flipping of the script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, she doesn't. She is just this, yeah, you know, take me as I am. But like, there's nothing for him to like, he's obsessed with his work. And that's the only obstacle to their relationship. Mm-hmm. But I would have liked to see that, like, oh, yes, in the outside, she is this perfect socialite, but on the inside, she's depraved. And that would actually be the Hyde girlfriend, whereas you thought it was going to be the opposite. Don't you feel silly for your prejudice? Brian, um, I love your pitch. If only they had done that. Yeah, like still, again, nothing I say negates my love for what they did. But I remember having that thought because it was just in such close proximity to me being introduced to feminist literary analysis with this text. So, Yeah. Go also, ahead, just to subtly on. add to that, it's just one like statement is I now that we're kind of unpacking the women, like just tipping the hat to gothic queen that is Mary Shelley, like this mm-hmm. genre wouldn't even have been here without mm-hmm. her. So I kind of mm-hmm. like that with this adaptation, like there's not one, but there's two women and I almost like mm-hmm. think of like if Jekyll and Hyde is like this tent, they're like the opposite pegs holding down kind of what's going on because anytime he's he spirals as like Hyde or like you know grapples with his guilt with Jekyll when he's so far gone he still has these women kind of those like those are his tether points kind of in in scenes so I just find that's interesting that yeah it's this male pack text but like let's all remember gothic genre Mary Shelley Frankenstein yeah just Patrick. Yeah, I guess I don't really have much to add. I feel like both Brian and Jillian have, have like really done an excellent job of kind of scaffolding what these characters do. I think my one thing is I, like I'm both intrigued, Brian, by like the idea that Emma could have a dark side to her. But I also feel like part of me is like maybe my reading of it was too psychoanalytic, but I wasn't even thinking of, of like Emma or even actually Lucy as a potential like kind of mirror for the Jekyll Hyde scenario, but more like a commentary on, or what I found interesting was like this commentary on kind of like the way class frames how like the psychosexual development of aristocratic men like plays out. That Emma, there's nothing really qualitatively different about Emma and Lucy except for their social station. And, but precisely because of their social station, Lucy is the one who has to experience the like refraction of Mr. Hyde, which... I mean, it, it ends up being a different kind of what is ultimately being interrogated by those choices, because I'm also intrigued by, like, your idea as well. I'm like, that would be interesting, too, as a different yeah. thing to explore. Because mm-hmm. I just feel like, yeah, we, if the proposal being made that's justifying this fake science is that everybody has a good side and a bad side, and we must learn to suppress a character like, well, both of these characters very much, you know, they are just purely good. So they, 
yeah. they are kind of challenging our notion that like, yeah. you know, because I do think there is merit to, yes, we all have, you know, dark sides and urges and impulses mm -hmm. that society does suppress and that may be for good reason in certain cases, but Mm -hmm. Yeah, having I think we could have had more thorough interrogation of this idea of the duality of the human soul if we didn't have these kind of very altruistic two female characters. And because you're absolutely right, it's like simply because of her like socioeconomic standing that Lucy is seen as the bad one when there's nothing qualitatively mm -hmm. bad about her. I could kind of at least understand if she seems bad because of her line of work and then is proved, mm -hmm. revealed to be good. Emma is the one I want to see more inversion of because yeah. she seems positive, Good. but that is high yeah. more of a underbelly. Yeah, I'd want to see both their those tracks. Like if I ever directed a musical, a, a version of this, I would want to see like, what is it? Yeah, what is it like? We start some scenes where Lucy is perceived like maybe it's what she's wearing is a little bit more conservative, but like her actions are more liberal. And then you segue to scenes where Emma is like showing ankle or like mm -hmm. in the corner, like reading a smutty novel or something, right? Like just these little switches. Yeah. That every... But also the man who has, who she clearly has a historic like relationship to, like there actually could be ways you could play into that as well. Absolutely. To, like, build yeah. like kind of this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's interesting things you could do there for sure. Yeah. Andrew. You're going to make me follow all that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, I got notes too, so I'll be following them too. Oh, okay. At least, like, this is the question that I had trouble with because I'm like, oh man, I don't know because I've gotten so stuck on the idea of like these two characters were created for this particular type of like plot that mm -hmm. I wasn't sure how to necessarily kind of go about deciding what I thought about them because I thought it was interesting, but also I felt like it was like, I, I just kind of felt like it was potentially not, and this could be wrong, a, a not a well thought out piece. They were just like, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting if we had this like other character that we can kind of link with Hyde and see that kind of duality? And I'm like, okay, but I mean, I would have also liked to see just one of the female characters interact with Hyde as well as Jekyll and see how that might have worked out and how like the Emma character would have taken the immoral side of the person that she's come to love and then see if Emma actually like, oh, I kind of dig that because he's not whatever the hell that mm. I'm supposed to appreciate. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought the creation of this other uh, Julia Roberts, pretty woman character. <laughs> <laughs> We're all saying it. So <laughs> I'm just gonna, I'm gonna call it like it is. This I thought that was somewhat unnecessary to have like you created one but i don't know if you needed to necessarily create a second one mm -hmm. mm. that's how i saw it but like i totally like i'm so glad that i got to hear all of those opinions because i'm like oh no that's a really good point that would be so cool and now i think i'll have to watch it again after we close this conversation so that i can kind of go oh yeah no i see this i see that mm -hmm. especially mm -hmm. the idea of what if the Lucy character was more, not pure, that's the wrong word, but like more to like the stereotypical standards of what a Victorian society was supposed to look like and Emma straight from that a little bit. So that's mm -hmm. going to be a thought I have in my mind mm -hmm. as I watch this in the future. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'm going to preface all my notes here by saying I have no problem with Emma and Lucy's inclusion. 
What I do have a problem with is the book writers underdeveloping these characters. And mm-hmm. by underdeveloping them, as I said before, they fell back on generic character tropes instead of actually giving them a little bit more meat for the actresses to chew on. Like the Emma being a little bit more risque than what she appears. Lucy doing something more Lucy than just she is a prostitute with the heart of gold. Something more there. And that's the problem is they added them in, which I don't have a problem with. If you're going to be changing the story, then go for it. Just they didn't do enough with them to make me go, oh, okay, this is actually warranting your presence in my story, you know? And like, I either would have rather would have just had say, choose one character as Andrew said, and just go deep into that one character or do both, but you got to give them more to do than just what they were doing. And I mean, it's, it's in a simple fixes too. So for example, some script doctoring here, like one of the notes I have is you can make it a little bit more interesting where have Jekyll be wanting to slum it in the East End, and he has a previous relationship with Lucy. And he creates the serum because he's afraid he's going to cheat on Emma. That right there builds a little bit more backstory, a little more connection between these three characters, and gives a little bit more than just Jekyll gets taken out to a bachelor party by Utterson, and oh, surprise, he finds the one really good prostitute in, in the bar that has a bit of, that has the heart of gold that's going to help him, you know? Like, do like, like they needed to do something more with them than just what they were given. It just wasn't enough. And it's too bad because the singer, the actresses who sang this piece are wonderful. There's been many great singers who have done this work, including Carolee Carmelo, who's on Broadway right now. There's a whole bunch of great actresses who have played these parts. It's just, they're not given enough. They're just mm-hmm. another version of Eponine and Cosette is basically what they are. Hot well, take, just, have Jekyll bring Emma with him to Slum on the East Side and have her that, have that a whole sexual awakening. <laughs> I mean, that totally happened. I mean, the Victorians were very sexually charged people. They yeah. were quite dirty people. Oh, yeah. They were like they were sexually repressed, but they were quite dirty if you read the literature and the stuff about them. And it's just too bad that the writers didn't do enough with these characters. And even like Robert Louis Stevenson, who who wrote the book, has who also wrote Treasure Island, seemed to really not like female characters. Because in Treasure Island, you got what's his name's mom in the beginning of the story, and then she comes back at the very end. In this, you have the maid. So like clearly Stevenson there was not a big fan of female characters, he just didn't know how to write them. So he oftentimes left them out of his stories and made them like a boys' boys novel. So I'm all for the writers doing something different. It's just, you gotta do more than just generic character plopping them into the story. They deserve to be more than what they were given. Those actresses did a lot with what they had, but those characters could have been so much more developed and interesting. It's just, they kind of just went, love triangle, yay. Big power duet ballads, go. It's like, okay, all right. All right, you did it. Like, all these pitches are so much better. It's like, gosh darn it. Like, was nobody in the rehearsal room going like, hey, Wildhorn, rest of the team, we need to do more of these characters. Give us something more. Like, as Ryan was saying, Bring On the Men is a much better song because it gives a little bit more to Lucy. She's a sexually free woman. There's a little bit more to that character and great on that. But it's just like, Oh, 
it was just such a missed opportunity for me. That just makes me want to bang my head against the wall even more. <sighs> Jill, final word. I, see I was just going to say okay. in my redirection, when Jekyll brings Emma to, to that scene, or maybe she finds out he's going and then sneaks in the back door and she watches bring on the men. And then that's her mm. part of her empowerment. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. We're, so we're bringing, like, we're giving agency to these women, Mac. And that's what needs to happen. And like, all. <laughs> like, like, it sucks Lucy dies at the end, but she dies in such an anticlimactic way where it's like, girl, you got a letter saying leave. Now is not the time to sit on your bed and sing a power ballad. Get out of the room and move. Singing and then the she dies. wasn't the problem. She instantly goes to sleep after singing the ballad. That's like, you were just problem. told to get out of town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, Oh, like at least have her like going toward the door with her bag and Jekyll or Hyde catches her in the door. Something more to give them more agency than just sing on the bed, go to sleep. I think it's, if this show was done today in 2022, like when was this pro shot again? 2001, you were saying, Matt? 2001. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's so much more, like it doesn't seem like that's a massive amount of time, but exponentially yes it is and like ideals are different and society is different and yeah i just think doing this show now would be very i would love to see like a professionally done take on this show i would love to see someone rewrite the book yeah and revive this show because they because they've done concert revivals where they've taken out all the chorus stuff and just had the power ballads and that doesn't work either you need, like, I, 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 you have, I, I, as you said, Ryan or Joe, one of you said, the scaffolding is there. They just did a horrible job. That was Patrick. Patrick sorry, Patrick said it. <laughs> but it's like, you just did a horrible job building around the scaffolding. Your skeleton was there. You just didn't build the body right. You know, mm-hmm. it's missing kidneys. It's missing its left ear. I don't know. It's just missing body parts. It's Frankenstein. Yeah. yeah. The creature. <laughs> the monster. Yes, exactly. So. All right, let's go into the last question, though. And it's difficult. So it starts with this. It's difficult to watch Jekyll and Hyde, whether the 90s or today, without drawing comparisons to other contemporaneous mega musicals based on Gothic literary sources, such as Sweetie Todd and Phantom of the Opera. How do these comparisons inform your viewing of the piece? Patrick, I'll let you start this one. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not one to. Like, there's lots of different ways to do gothic right so mm-hmm. i'm i'm rarely one to like see jeff on hide and be like oh but sweeney todd exists or oh but phantom exists like that's not kind of the maneuver that i make but i will say precisely because frank wildhorn did dracula the musical i did find that hangs over jekyll and hyde for me and i can't mm-hmm. remember which one came first it might actually be jekyll and hyde but i have a soft spot for dracula which is awful but so great um, and so there, there were there were actually moments where like, just even like musically, it was really similar. So I found myself kind of, I don't know, of course, it, it felt like there was some kind of lack of, I don't know, like versatility or flexibility, I guess, on Wildhorn's part in what he's exploring. But I feel like in terms of like, Swe- I mean, Sweeney is such a different beast. <laughs> like, it's funny, in some ways, Jekyll and Hyde reveals that Gothic itself is just kind of campy. And so Sweeney might not actually be, you know, when you really start to think about it, you're like, oh, this might be a little more absurd than I first, like, 
than I first realized. So there might be something about Jekyll and Hyde that, Hyde that honestly reveals what is kind of going on in the Gothic. But for me, they're just like so different. And then Phantom of the Opera, I'm going to be, I'm just going to say it, Andrew Lloyd Webber, I absolutely loathe his work. So it doesn't hang over anything for me. There's no chandelier hanging It's over. not even bad in a good way. It's just like bad. So for me, like I really appreciate that Jekyll and Hyde has a clear point of view on the Gothic, which is camp, which incidentally happened. I don't think that's Frank Wildhorn's like a deliberate decision, but that's how the best camp happens. So yeah, for me, it's just like, it's just a totally different beast from all of the other things, except for asterisk Dracula the Musical, which I also highly recommend people look into. I would love to see, there, there should be a, like a dual musical day where it's like Dracula and Jekyll and Hyde. I'd be curious to see what do these look like in conversation with each other? Uh, let's get a great director on that. Next season, Dracula and Jekyll and Hyde as, as, as their musical double bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Starring Jill. And Patrick. And me. And you Patrick. keep forgetting Steve McKenzie. <laughs> Sorry, Patrick. <laughs> no, I definitely unpack that. Yes. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Jill, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm of the same. I like I I never look at pieces, especially musicals. I love going if I've never listened to the soundtrack or I've never seen it. So many people being like a theater performer, like, oh, you've never seen guys and dolls. I'm like, no, I haven't. And I'm about to see it now and I will have my opinion on it. Like, <laughs> so I I'm like that with every piece. And so I understand like how there's like bubblegum musicals. There's like like there's different tropes and there's different groups. And yes, like I like some more than others, but every piece has a little something. If there's like, as long as there's a nugget of like love and humanity somewhere in, especially musicals where, you know, emotions rest upon the song and the dance and the reason why people are coming to see spectacle, then I'm all for it. So I, I also think it, it's, reading this question too, like I, I see that like Sweeney and Phantom and Jekyll and Hyde are seen under the same umbrella, but I also get a lot of, we've talked about, we've mentioned a lot in this conversation too, like lame is like there's, I think musicals are really neat and quirky and weird in that you can draw bits and pieces from like every musical to talk on every musical in some shape or form, like regardless of who who is behind it like composer wise or you know productions of it so yeah I think it's its own identity do I think it's as strong as like a Sweeney or a Phantom just by society means obviously not because it's a stinker with half of our panel and not a lot of people know about it and want to watch it so but you know I think it's the underdog and I enjoyed it and I'm excited to dive in and rewrite and redirect very good andrew i mean i think i view like the likes of phantom of the opera and sweeney todd completely like i don't draw comparison between them even though they might be like stylistically similar similar but that doesn't necessarily influence like how i perceive a piece but like i think there are elements of them that I enjoy. Like Sweeney and Phantom are probably among my favorite musicals because I think of the style, the gothic style, which now that I'm thinking about it is probably why I enjoy Jekyll and Hyde. But 
it doesn't necessarily influence me as to like, oh, you like these two, you're going to like Jekyll and Hyde. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of like the similar elements that I kind of process and acknowledge as part of the genre, not genre, but common ways of performing a show that I just acknowledge it, but don't necessarily kind of go, well, yes, but this, but Phantom is better because, but Les Mis is better because, but Sweeney is better because I just kind of go, this is Jekyll and Hyde. It's among this family. Tell me what you think kind of way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and yeah, as, as Jillian, you said, it's, it's certainly different enough that it is hard to draw comparisons to the life of the mega musicals. So for that reason, in and of itself, you kind of just go, no, I don't need to, I don't need to link it among them. I can just view it as the fun Hoff mm-hmm. musical piece, I think. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Ryan? Okay. Mm. Controversial takes coming your way. Okay, so I'll preface all this by saying I have a hunch that the only reason why we got a Jekyll and Hyde musical is because Phantom was a blockbuster, burn all the house down, like, huge success. And, you know, a bunch of producers mm-hmm. are like, how do we make that lightning strike twice? So let's, you know, maybe Victorian literature is the secret here. Well, what do we got? Got Gothic specifically. <laughs> is there a guy with a mask? Well, not in a traditional sense, but he has a facade. Perfect. Get that in there. <laughs> so like, I've never been a big fan of Phantom myself. Granted, I've never seen it like a live stage version of it. I hated the Joel Schumacher movie. And I know that is like notoriously a bad film adaptation of a musical, but it hasn't made me want to spend Broadway or Mervish dollars to see like actu- an actual production of it. That, that is my comparison there. So even though I'm thankful to Phantom of the Opera for making Jekyll and Hyde exist, I, you know, that's not a comparison that I will personally draw because it's not one that I have any particular love for. Sweeney Todd is an interesting comparison because as Matthew pointed out, like the facade and murder, murder, that is just like the ballad of Sweeney Todd. And we have kind of a lot of the similar musical tropes and types. I feel like I've, partially voiced this controversial opinion before on an episode or two, but I'm not a big Sondheim fan. Here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. I recognize that Sondheim was RIP. We lost him about a year ago. That a very talented, very like Mm -hmm. brilliant songwriter, lyricist, musical, everything. But as someone who is not a music theory person, really doesn't know a lot about the ins and outs, I kind of basically never, with one exception, and that's funny thing happened on the way to the forum, but I basically never put on a cast album of a Sondheim musical just because I want to listen to something fun or good. Like, and I do that with Jekyll and Hyde all the time. So, like, is the music in Sweeney Todd better than Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah, probably. But do I enjoy listening to it as much? No. I'm sorry, every musical theater person, don't crucify me, but like... I'm crucifying you. (laughs) You're crucifying me with your eyes. Yes. No, I will support you. It's not that I don't like Sondheim. I love Sondheim, but like, I I have not drank the Sondheim Kool-Aid. Like, (laughs) there's some musical theater people that are like, Sondheim are bust, and it's like, Sondheim and and other people, too. He's great. I recognize his greatness, but it just doesn't do it for me the way like I feel like it's supposed to. And like on those grounds, yeah, again, I, I recognize that Sweeney is probably the better piece. It's I just, 
I'm not bothered by that comparison because, yeah, to each their own, there is no objective art criticism. This is the one that I gravitate to more personally. Fair. Fair. I mean, I will say, for me, Sweeney Todd is a superior piece. Tune in next Halloween when we cover that. Should I not be on that panel because everyone's just gonna crucify No, no, come back because, like, I need to come back. Yeah. And I need to come back, and I will fight. I'm not in a position to fight. I get that it's good. <laughs> I even like it, it just fine. It just isn't like my big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love funny things happen on the way to the forum. That is my favorite Sondheim. It's very good. It's very funny, even though Sondheim didn't like it very much. Anyways, That's where he and I disagree. It's not the Sondheim <laughs> podcast. But what I will say is, I think it's generally agreed upon by most theater people Sondheim is not a hummable composer. He was a brilliant I was about to say that, composer yeah. in Lyricist. But he, yeah. he was critiqued for it throughout his entire career, mm -hmm. except for West Side Story and Gypsy because somebody else worked with him. But typically on his own shows, Sunday in the Park, Assassins, Passion, they're not hummable shows. I would say Sweeney's more in the hummable category but if you try and hum the Ballad of Sweeney Todd, it sounds kind of dun, 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 dun. It's like, okay. Versus, like, I will say, Jekyll Knight has some very hummable melodies to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So does Phantom. Phantom, don't get me started on that show. That show's got major problems. And thank God it's finally closing on Broadway after 35 years. That piece <laughs> needs to be put to bed. God bless its soul. But I will say... Going back to the question of how do these comparisons affect my viewing experience, unless I actively go and turning my brain off and saying, don't think about it, just watch the Hoff, schmacked it up as hard as he can. In the back of my head, I'm always going to be thinking of, okay, Facade, you're the lesser version of the Ballad of Sweeney Todd. In his eyes, the is the alternative version of I know him so well from chess. Like, like there are so many parallels you can pull. And, so, and sometimes, yes, you can pull parallels in a musical, but I shouldn't actively be doing that. Like, if a show is really good, then there can definitely be pulls from other shows. Absolutely. But I shouldn't be actively being like, that song is that, but just with a new coat of paint. That song mm -hmm. is that with a new coat of paint. I should be able to sit back and just enjoy the show without that coming into my brain. But because the writing is so, once again, sorry, Frank Wildhorn, please don't hate me, but it's just like, your writing was so underdone that it just, it makes your mind go of, there's a better version of this that's out there. I wish I was listening to that at the moment. But for what it is, if you go in and just actively turn your theater brain off and just go, have a drink, have fun, like I said when I recommended it, then you'll have a good time with it. But if you are a theater encyclopedia, and can actively be pulling other songs from your brain going, that's that. I can see where they were going with that one. It kind of messes with your head a bit. And you kind of got to be actively tamping down the brain saying, don't go there, stay active, stay present. So, you know, it is what it is. But, but I mean, once again, this is a popcorn musical. It just says Phantom is a popcorn musical. It is what it is. These, uh, these particular gothic horror adaptations are camp sweeney's camp but with more character to it and I, that's what saves that show because 
in pop. Sorry. But Sondheim knew when he was writing that this is campy. Like, like the guy who cuts and makes people into pies is this is a Victorian serial murder, but he gave, but he's the one that came up with, or he took the concept of the revenge plot that was in Christopher Bond's play and really kind of flushed it out and gave Sweeney more teeth. Mrs. Lovett had more energy to her. She wasn't just the side pot character, you know, like he took the camp, but gave something more to it. And that's what this piece missed. They just kind of went for the camp and missed the, you got to give me something more. Like even dare I say the phantom has a bit more to him than Jekyll and Hyde does minor, maybe by like a hair. That's the like highest praise I've ever heard you give the Phantom of the Opera. I know. <laughs> it's like a minor hair ahead, the Phantom is. A minor hair. They're both mur- murderous psychopaths, but like minor hair ahead. But it's like, oh, <laughs> just they are what they are. And I just go, you know, you just got to go in, leave the comparisons at the door if you can, and just sit back and accept the show for what it is. What is it? Take me as I am is the song from the show. That's this musical in a nutshell. Take it, Patrick. As it is. You had a really interesting facial expression when Mac said the Phantom and Jekyll and Hyde. Can you tell us what your brain was thinking right there? I mean, I'm just like, like, hate Jekyll and Hyde. Yes, it's terrible. I agree, but I feel like you're just grabbing at straws there to be like, and this insult, like the Phantom has one motivation. Christine sings pretty, so I kill people. Like, what? Like, Dr. Jekyll and and Mr. Hyde have way more motivations. Like, I'm like, this is... I don't even like to do cross-cultural, like, like analysis, but I'm like, come on. Oh, we gotta do a Jekyll and Hyde (laughs) after the opera Smackdown, and I need to be there. (laughs) Hey, coming soon to you, the newest foreign show on the cup, the cup debates. (laughs) Who's got more to them? Matt, you created like four terrible. different tendrils of the cup just in this one episode alone. <laughs> Can we just say for any of our auditory learners, I'm thoroughly enjoying Andrew's gestures to everybody's <laughs> comments on this whole panel. I've yes. been brilliant. Yes. Like treat yourself to the YouTube version of this episode <laughs> if you're just listening, because Andrew is laying it down all of that. That's he, yeah. he has I more need... subtlety in him. Than... <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. You need anytime I'm captioning. laughing, it's because I'm watching it. <laughs> yeah, you need closed captioning for Andrew's reactions. 100 I don't have a poker face. <laughs> so good. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Okay. And that is it, everybody. We've gone for over two hours on this sucker. Oh, it's a long one, but you know, this piece gives a lot to, to chew on surprisingly <laughs> so before we go <coughs> we'll wrap it up with our sign off andrew where can people find follow you and where can we see you play the devil so you can find and follow me on instagram at andrew.s.puaru i'm gonna trust the cup of hemlock team to just put the spelling out there because it's ridiculous you can see me playing the devil at some point i'm the video editor so it's when i'm done <laughs> I will let you know and it will be on Instagram. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. Patrick, I mean, I gotta say, you got the Jeff Goldblum look going today. It's very stylish. What, what is the Jeff Goldblum look? Yeah, for sure, it's unbuttoned like in Jurassic Park when he oh, gets yeah. injured. <laughs> 
Ryan got the reference. <laughs> I, 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 I know my Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can find me at Postmodern Pat on Instagram, where you can see more of my fits. Not all Jeff Goldblum inspired. And if you're navigating the hellscape that is academia, you might also enjoy my Twitter at Patrick Michael T. But that's much more the academic side. And then Instagram is more the fun artist side. So love it. Love it. Love it. Jill, where can people find and follow you? And can we see a cover of Good and Evil coming for you sometime in the future? Ooh, okay, yes. So yes, yes, yes to all the things. My, you can follow my artist Instagram account at jillian.robinson96. And yes, potentially to that song, Mac. Also, I've been singing... Do bring well, on the men instead of good. Well, I will do that one too. Bring on the men. There's a lot. Once upon a dream is just like, honestly, I kid you not. That is my go-to ballad. I get it. It's cliche, but it's such an awesome song. Crack your heart open. And then someone like you, I've been singing ad nauseum in the apartment too. So yes, keep your eyes peeled. I will potentially cover something down the line. And then we should do dangerous game. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Also keep eyes peeled. We should just, we should also do in his eyes, Patrick. Yeah. So Patrick and I are going to do, take all the duets. We're going to strip them from, and we're going to do a cabaret coming to Instagram feeds near you. Love it. Done. Love it. Ryan, give us your classic Ryan Barakovich send off. We all know and love. Yeah. No point following me on any social media because yeah, no point. So (laughs) Just send all that love to Cup of Hemlock. I said, usually I have my The Cup Cup, but ain't that just the way. So yeah, yeah. anything I post on the one social media I'm even a little active on is always just these episodes and they go live, so you're not missing much. Right now, though, I am currently assistant dramaturge for the Howland Company's production of Three Sisters that I think when this episode goes up, it like will have just opened or is just about to open. Mm. It's going to be at Hard House. Come check it out. If you like Chekhov and theater... Chekhov is often theater, so you might enjoy this. <laughs> Great plug. I, I'm clearly not <laughs> responsible for marketing this show. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. And you can find and follow me at Mackenzie Horner all, on all social media platforms. I do have a musical podcast where we have covered things like Sweeney Todd and Phantom of the Opera. And it is called Before the WD Musical Podcast. We are in the process of getting our fifth season ready for release, but we do have some fun projects coming in the meantime, featuring our wonderful Jillian Robinson. Robinson, there you go, she's on that side of me. Where we will be doing some live movie musical commentaries. Jill's two picks were Cats, as she's never watched the movie before. And we also will be doing a Little Shop of Horrors as well. Killer Plants, all the way. So there you go, so tune in for that. Check out the Before the Downbeat Instagram, or Facebook page or Twitter page. We have all the dates posted and we're going to have a lot of fun with those shows. I cannot wait to have Jill watch Cats for the first time. Yeah. It's going to be fun. Patrick is going to tune in just to see her reactions. 100%. Um, <laughs> we, I am so excited. And we swear Jill will not be drunk or high when she watches no. a completely sober reaction. I'm a That's sober lady. You you're going to wish y'all were. <laughs> you're gonna feel like you're drunk and or high perfect it's true uh, bring it on who knows maybe for our Christmas episode this year we'll do the pro shop version of cats just to shake things up who knows? that's a ter- that's a lump of coal for Christmas from what I've heard 
<laughs> well, no, the pro shot from the 90s is good. It's the film that's terrible. Oh, yes. None of it's good. Thank you. Okay. I mean, overall, it's cats. That's a totally different. Anyway, we're going on a tangent. <laughs> Thank you all so much for tuning in. And remember, everybody, we'll look behind the facade. Happy <gasps> Halloween. Happy, Happy Halloween. Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.